VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, January the 10th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. We're looking forward to speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So, as you've no doubt heard... Bit of snow coming for the Avalon Peninsula today. First bit of snow, really, for the entire winter season thus far. I don't even know how bad it's going to be, of course. I don't have a crystal ball. And meteorology is not an exact science, even though I think the local meteorologists do a great job. So we were looking at maybe 25 centimeters, but it looks like the storm was tracked a little further east, maybe somewhere 15, maybe 20 here in town. But anywho, here it comes, and you know what to do. Went to the grocery store, just had to buy two things yesterday. So I walk in, and lo and behold, of course, and this is standard practice, maybe it's just become part of our habit, is the maybe panic buying and full carts for what might be a fairly moderate snow event today. But anywho, it looks like the food of choice is, of course, the storm chip, which I'm told in some corners is not a thing. But given what I saw in the aisles and at the till yesterday at the grocery store, it absolutely is. One thing that we talked a little bit about yesterday, and I see more people commenting on it today, is the timing with which, whether it be the K-12 school system or provincial government offices, municipal government offices, garbage collection, all the rest of it, the timing of the potential to close the next day. Now, it becomes pretty precarious. As we just saw this morning, maybe the storm's not going to be as intense as we thought 36 hours ago here on the Avalon. And good morning to everyone around the province. And it does seem like we get a little bit carried away when a bit of weather hits town versus some of the massive storms we've already seen in other parts of the province uh, this winter. But anyway, it's the timing issue. You know, is it even manageable or possible or is it a fool's errand for, for instance, the school system? Because that's the big one, right? Parents need the time the time and the chance to try to organize some place for their children to be safely today while the schools are closed and they are indeed closed for most of the Avalon Peninsula but can they actually announce it yesterday because what happens if the storm track is really all of a sudden not that big a deal this morning and then a school day is lost maybe with no real reason behind it now today it looks like it might be a messy commute so i don't dispute the fact they had to close it today but people wonder or not there could be a caveat associated with an announcement yesterday versus what is the go-to generally speaking 6 a.m 7 a.m on the day of the weather event where we'll hear the potential closers and there's lots of them the storm center at vocm.com is pretty busy and if you want to take a peek you could do it and given the fact that k-12 is at home today whether it be admin teachers and you could just be caller on line one if you want to reflect on what you've seen so far in the school year what's happening in your school and of course for parents and or school-aged children if you'd like to join us on the program today we'll do it and maybe you just get a chance on these types of snow days or snow holidays to tune into the program a couple of very quick on this day in history sports notes we're going to go through basketball hockey and football today 
So it was the day in 1986 that the great Kareem Abdul-Jabbar scored his 34,000th point. He was the first player in NBA history to hit that milestone. He's still the all-time leader in points with 38,387, but it looks quite likely he's going to be caught. LeBron James is close on his heels at 37,965, but it was the day in 86 that Kareem, probably on the skyhook, sunk his 34,000th point. Today in 1989, uh, the great Wayne Gretzky, the great one, between regular season and playoffs, he recorded four assists and a 5-4 win for his then LA Kings versus his former club, the Edmonton Oilers, to make his point total between regular season and playoffs 2011. One more than the great Cordy Howe. We all know the records that Gretzky holds. And this is a good one. Dave Williams, big football fan. It was today in 1982. To wrap up a 14-play, 83-yard drive, Joe Montana, San Francisco quarterback, hooks up with wide receiver Dwight Clark in the end zone with what they call the catch. One of the most iconic plays in history. The 49ers in the 80s were absolutely dominant. They went to the playoffs eight times during the 1980s, won three Super Bowls, more than any other team, of course, that decade. But the catch today between Montana and Dwight Clark in the end zone to come back, make it a 28-27 victory over the Dallas Cowboys, less than a minute remaining on the clock. The catch, okay. All right, this story popped up. I got some attention a little while back, just before we took a break for the Christmas holidays. And it's regarding Crown Lands. So I believe the family out in Catalina, their name are the Diamonds. So they had built a house on this piece of property, and they'd been living in it for decades. If I remember correctly, it was over four decades. They decided to downsize. They were going to move into something a little bit more manageable. And so lo and behold, when they went to sell the home, they found out that they don't own the land because it was on Crown Land. So, very quickly, we heard dozens of stories very similarly. And if you look at the map of what encompasses Crown land across the province, these stories are going to be extremely common. We're going to see more and more people go to downsize. We're maybe going to see more and more people live some smaller remote communities, possibly to be closer to healthcare and or closer to their family, whatever the case may be. But this poses a massive problem. If the government does not deal with it, we're going to have families that deal with long, lengthy, costly, legal wrangling to quiet titles. Back in 1976, it became effective on the 1st of January 1997, away went squatters' rights. And so consequently, we find ourselves where we are. Now, the province has heard these stories. They're talking about possible considerations to amend the Lands Act regarding Crown Lands. Here's some of the considerations being put forward. And there's going to be virtual engagement sessions later this month, which I think are going to be quite popular. Number one are the three changes being considered and only considered. Changing the possessory, possessory, how do you say that word? Possessory? Yeah, possessory. Changing the possessory period of land from the current 20 continuous years immediately prior to January the 1st, 1977, to 10 continuous years immediately prior to January the 1st of 1977. No other period of possession would count in acquiring an interest in Crown lands. So, halving the continuous occupation probably very helpful. Number two, setting a definitive time period within which persons may make claims to Crown lands based on adverse possession have to make those claims. And three, allowing the Crown to issue a document that declares Crown claims no interest where the conditions of adverse possession have been met without granting title or transferring any interest. Now there's a bit of legal mumbo jumbo included inside of those three considerations. But importantly, 
I mean, I know government has to be very studious when it comes to how they manage crown lands. And with how strict they've been with individuals who, are unbeknownst to them, built a home on what is now crown land, or understood not to be crown land, he can only help the government is as diligent and as studious and as protective of crown land with industry, especially in the wind project business, as compared to how strict they are with individuals who have built a home on a piece of crown land. So some of those changes are coming when we have more information about the opportunity to engage with the Department of Fisheries, Forestry and Agriculture. We will bring it to you. Of course, we will. But that's a big deal. And that's going to have to be attended to. Moving off into not only crown lands, but wherever you've built your home. And maybe you do indeed have deed to the property underneath your home. Here we go, bit of cold snap coming in the storm today. People will be talking about the price to heat their home. Now, yesterday, there was an adjustment made by the PUB to see the price of gasoline go down by over 7 cents per liter. Good news, but stove oil is down 11.6 per liter, and furnace oil also saw a moderate move. But here's the trick. So come April, unless there's some move made between the province and the federal government, come April of this year, there will indeed be carbon tax applied to home heating fuels, which was not the case with the bilateral agreement with the province signed under then-Premier Dwight Ball with the federal government, where we saw the carbon tax applied to other fuels, but not heating your home. And that made all the sense in the world. I think there's a fair argument to be made about the necessity of life. It's hard to make a bunch of alterations of your habits and behaviors and the methods with which you heat your home, unlike maybe, say, for instance, driving and the frequency behind the wheel or sharing or public transportation. But that's a potential problem in the offing. And then add to it. There is certain thing regarding the expiry date on your oil tank for furnace oil. And I've heard from a couple of people, one notably a neighbor and friend, who said that reported to his supplier that the tank was about to expire. And the advice given to this fellow was, when you've got about a quarter tank left, call us back and we'll organize coming in to flip out your tank and to fill it up and off we go. He arrives at a quarter tank, calls his supplier to then be told, well, we're bookings uh, for the tank swap outs for about three weeks from now. And then, of course, the obvious question from this fellow is, why did you tell me to call back with a quarter tank to go and then tell me it's going to be three weeks? He'll burn through that quarter tank well before the three weeks are up. So there's got to be a meeting in the middle of the timing, timing for which you're asked to call back and then the ability to get the tank swapped out before you run out of fuel. And so consequently, he has to scramble, find a way to put a bit of additional oil in his tank to get him to the three weeks. It's his primary source of heat. He's got his children. He has no options here, so that's one. And then for people who use propane, and this story, there's one particular citizen speaking out, I believe she's in Mount Pearl, talking about the increase she's seeing in the leasing or the renting of a propane tank. So she only uses the propane for one small fireplace in her home. It would take her, she guesses, about a full year to, take, to consume the 250-liter tank of propane. So she's been paying $99 a month. And then lo and behold, in one fell swoop, went from $99 to $199, a 102% increase. Okay, she says that's because the new policy says people who burn less than 250 liters of fuel per year have seen this whoppering increase. So we're all expecting and anticipating incremental increases in a variety of things. But a 102% increase is really outrageous. It truly is. They've negotiated some outcome here, but... 
you know, the company will say, and the company in question here is North Atlantic, and the company says they've made every effort to ensure that they introduce the smallest increase possible. Holy macaroni, if 102% is the smallest increase possible, there must be some carefully whittled pencils as they try to figure out how to deal with their customers in appropriate fashion and to keep their customers, because you would have to imagine that that type of increase is just not only unacceptable, but possibly unmanageable for most families. So eventually the company offered to remove the tank from the property for free, reimburse her for the 70 liters of fuel left in the tank. But you know, you know, not every customer or consumer has the same behaviors or will consume the same amount of fuels, regardless of the fuel we're talking about. So whether it be the timing of when you reach a quarter tank of your furnace oil, and or those using propane for even a small fireplace versus some of the other uh, opportunities to use propane in the home. Those costs are pretty significant, and if you want to take it on today, we can do it. Just a reminder that we saw just before Christmas, there was, we were told, going to be a diversion of emergency or crisis evaluations from the Waterford to Sinclair's, and that remains in place until the 17th of January, at least. A couple of things on that front. You know, some of the wording that comes from some regional health authorities and or the government sometimes is a little bit clumsy. And it doesn't come across as clear and as concise as required. Like, we all know that the health authorities and the province are struggling with recruiting and retaining healthcare workers. We know it. So there's no need for a murky news release because no one's going to be surprised if it's about staffing shortages. Same thing we've been talking about, emergency rooms that remain closed or emergency services that have been diverted. We know a lot of it's associated with staffing. So just be clear, because especially folks who may indeed need to present at the Waterford and or now St. Clair's, that clarity can go a long way. Now, Eastern Health is quick to say that the services at St. Clair's have not jeopardized any of these people or patients who present themselves in crisis. So they say it's the exact same process, albeit in a different facility. This is the comment coming from Eastern Health. It is important to note that those individuals who present to St. Clair's Mercy Hospital receive the same service they would have received if they went to the psychiatric assessment unit at the Waterford. They're triaged by a registered nurse, assessed by a qualified mental health professional, and transferred to the PAU, which is the psychiatric assessment unit, for a psychiatric consultation if needed. So they go on to say they've hired a new doctor that's set to begin in March actively recruiting to fill more positions. And so that's our stepping off point for the next big healthcare conversation and the two R's, the recruitment and retention. You know, it's hard to even know really where to start on that conversation. The province has put forward all kinds of incentives to try to repatriate uh, healthcare workers to this province in the come home plan. There's been all sorts of incentives offered to nurses on the casual list to move into permanent full time. But the big one will generally be you know, it's fine to see that the province is going all in when they tried to go to India to recruit nurses, registered nurses, or Ireland for other healthcare workers. But right where we have people who are born and raised here, have an affinity for the province, have family here, ties here, how aggressive are we with the first time you register and accepted to be a registered nurse inside a nursing school and or at Mons Medical School, of which we now have 65 seats. We did have 60 for Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. The province of New Brunswick stopped funding their five seats and the province took it over, so 65. You know, it'd be nice to know the status of just how active and possibly aggressive the province is with interviews, presenting opportunities for whatever discipline inside of healthcare. Our best hope 
is to close deals, sign contracts with people graduating from our schools who are from here, who are probably much more likely to stay here and to set up shop in different parts of the province. So that's a question posed by emailers repeatedly, and I think it's a good one. You know, it would be nice to have firm understanding, say, for instance, year over year. When the graduates of Munns Med School in particular, they walk across the stage at the convocation ceremonies at the Arts and Culture Center and hopefully sing the Ode to Newfoundland. It'd be nice to know exactly how many of those, even though I know some of them have to leave for further training and mentorship before they are fully qualified to practice on their own, how many of them have a contract in hand to either stay or to come back after those additional couple of years, say for instance, for instance in family medicine, to set up a clinic here establish a full patient roster, and hopefully close the numbers between 125,000 people-ish that don't have access to a family doctor. And then, of course, it's the scope of practice issue that we can also talk about if you're so inclined. How are we doing on the phone there, Dave? Let's get her going. She's all at home. What else are you doing? Uh, I do wonder on these types of days about the vulnerable population and where they're going to go to be safe and to be warm especially overnight. Uh, have we reached out to Doug Pawson at End Homelessness St. John's? He, he's a real great go-to voice on this particular issue. The most recent survey says that just in the capital city, there are somewhere in the neighborhood of 231 people who are homeless. That very likely doesn't reflect the true number because how many people are one paycheck away from being homeless and are about to lose the couch they've been surfing on at a friend's home or what have you? So between warming centers, which sometimes the city does in emergency situations, but housing is the responsibility of the province. So if we are going to see just in this city, let alone the rest of the province or the rest of the Northeast Avalon, just how many people will possibly have nowhere to go tonight during a storm, it's almost mind-boggling to think about it. A first world country like Canada, modern day, 2023, and we're going to have hundreds of people just on this one part of the province? that may indeed have nowhere to go. And of course, it's not just an issue here. We know that like we spoke with uh, Mayor Andrews up in Happy Valley Goose Bay the other day, and they've got a very similar problem. So if you want to chime in on that, let's do it. All right, a couple of quick ones before we get to your calls. And this is about public safety. There's been some good conversations about Bill C-21, the gun control legislation, which is deeply flawed. Canadians are in favor of gun control, but it's got to be done and demonstrated to be on point and with a direct relationship with public safety. And Bill C-21 doesn't do it. Don't take it from me. Take it from the National Association of Police Chiefs. And whether it be more focus at the U.S. border for handgun confiscation or what have you. But government and law enforcement have a wicked hard time keeping up with innovation. This story regarding 3D printed guns is unbelievable. I mean, they're untraceable, which is why they call them a ghost gun. In Canada, police seized over 100 of these 3D guns last year. And of course, if they confiscated 100, you know there's probably 10 times that out there floating around. Here's what becomes such a massive problem. There's no serial number. The printed part of the gun is the receiver, the part of the weapon that is actually regulated in Canada. So there's no serial number on that particular part. The other parts of the gun, you can go anywhere and get them. You can buy them at gun stores, you can buy them online, no problem whatsoever. And it's not just happening in the big bad cities like Toronto or Vancouver or Montreal. Right here in this province, we had a bust February last year. It was a manufacturing setup. They confiscated eight of these 3D guns, and they had to break down a bunch of multiple printers and other items. They were printing silencers. So this is an unbelievable problem. So while we focus in on what is the moving target of Bill C-21, and that's got to be done, right? But how do we catch up on these 3D printed guns? And what should associated punishment be for it? Because if you're willing and wanting to print a handgun 
at home. It's for no self-protection purpose. It ends up absolutely in the hands of the criminal element inside the world of gangland activity. So what do we do on that front? And then lo and behold, oh my, the F-35 saga. It's funny what we have money for and what we don't have money for. So let's go back. In 2010, then Prime Minister Stephen Harper sole sourced a, a deal to buy 65 F-35s. It's a modern-day stealth fighter. They've had some complications and mechanical glitches, which seem to be worked out. But back in 2010, it was a massive problem. Now, there's all kinds of miscalculations done by then-Minister McKay. But in 2015, while campaigning, the Prime Minister said it would be an egregious error to buy the Lockheed Martin F-35 stealth fighter jet to replace our CF-18s. And they're aging, and they've got to be replaced. And now, lo and behold... We have finalized the contract with Lockheed Martin to buy 88 of these F-35s to the tune of $19 billion. 88 warplanes. Warplanes. So couple that with the Navy frigates that are being procured. You know, all kinds of questions about uh, Canada's commitment to NATO and spending 2% of our GDP on defense. I would imagine this brings us up to that threshold, which was all the rage there a while ago. So... You know, I'm sure we need to. With our commitments to NORAD and NATO, I mean, these things have to be done. I don't know if 85, 88, pardon me, warplanes is the number. But let's also talk about the return to the Canadian economy. All right, it's a little bit confusing how this particular one is structured because it's not just the price per plane. It's all the parts and customization and support and other factors which bleed into the $19 billion. In the traditional purchase, in the past, of any military hardware, it used to be the federal government insisted and would only make a deal if there was a dollar-for-dollar dollar arrangement inside a reinvestment. So, to spend $19 billion with Lockheed Martin, the deal in the past would have been that Lockheed Martin would have to spend $19 billion in the country, whether it be to buy goods or any type of services, to have that reinvestment dollar-for-dollar. Dollar. It's not the case with this one. But you know all the needs and the wants and the reliance on food banks and up and down the line. It's funny what we sometimes have money for. $19 billion for warplanes. And I know, look, we've got to have the proper equipment for the men and women who fly, these aging CF-18s. But, you know, what was once an egregious error in the making has now been finalized. And the liberals are all of a sudden F-35ers. And you see, Bill Morneau, former finance minister, has a book coming out on the 17th of this month, taking the prime minister to task about his style of government, of governing. You know, Morneau felt like he was simply a figurehead, a rubber stamp. And so quite disappointed in the tense relationship between himself and the prime minister, which, of course, led up to his resignation. He also goes to talk about the COVID supports that were put in place. Now, I don't even know how we do any of these measures. Right? How do we possibly uh, approach this? There hasn't been a pandemic and this type of support required by Canadians, individually or businesses. So how does the evaluation even go, whether they did it properly or it was too quick and the lack of oversight and monitoring and the amount of money going out the door? But the most expensive, of course, came in the form of the Canadian wage subsidy, the emergency wage subsidy. It was a good idea. Apparently, Morneau and Trudeau had a conversation the night before the announcement, and when the Prime Minister took to the microphones, the number was substantially higher than the conversation between Morneau and Trudeau just the night before. So the Auditor General says the price tag of the wage subsidy program was over $100 billion, $100.7 billion. We're quick to claw back money from individuals who 
probably technically weren't eligible for the SERB, the Emergency Response Benefit. We'll claw that back. The wage subsidy, not so much. But anyway, you want to talk about Morneau and Trudeau and that book, which is a bit of griping on the go. And they're, but hey, that's expected, isn't it? All right. Uh, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openlineofvocm.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. We're going to begin with Evan O'Coin. He's a local musician. There was a meeting last night about safety or the lack thereof in the downtown sector of the city of St. John's. We'll hear what Evan has to say about that meeting right after this. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on the top of the board, line number one. Say good morning to local musician, Evan O'Coin. Let's see if I can get that. Uh, good morning, Evan. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you? Great today. Thanks. How you doing? I'm not too bad, sir. So we've been talking about this issue frequently here on the program, and everyone was, I think, encouraged to know there was a coalition coming together to talk about the issues in the downtown sector for public safety and join our forces to come up with ideas. There was a meeting last night, which I'm hearing disjointed reviews of. Your thoughts? Um, I was at the meeting last night, and uh, I will say that we were provided with uh, limited information going into it, those of us that were attending. Um, we, uh, as far as those of us that went were, I think, under the impression it was going to be an open discussion about public safety, an open discussion with the RNC in terms of the concerns that we had, um, how we were perceiving the response to those concerns, and possibly how the RNC could maybe enlighten us as to uh, what they're doing in order to help alleviate some of those concerns. Uh, instead, when we sat down, we were presented with a very rigid agenda. Uh, that included multiple presentations from various aspects of the RNC. Uh, a lot of those presentations, whereas I understand the intention of them, did feel more like being talked at than being talked with or talked to. Uh, when questions were interjected into said presentations, uh, the moderator tried to move us along outside of those questions. There were very few answers provided to any of the questions that we had. Uh, there was a Zoom component as well, so we had people online. There was supposed to be at the end about 15 to 20 minutes put aside for in-person questions and another 15 minutes put aside for Zoom questions. There were maybe two or three questions that they got to in person, and then they ushered us all out and didn't pay attention to the Zoom questions at all. We were told that they'd be saved and responded to later in the email. Um, it was a frustrating evening. Uh, as a, I've been gigging downtown for going on... 12 years now, uh, and I, I have seen, especially coming out of the pandemic with all the escalated mental health and, and drug issues that we're seeing downtown, we are seeing the increase as musicians, we're seeing increase in violence, we're seeing musicians getting jumped, we're seeing equipment being stolen, and none of that's new, but it seems to be escalated. And uh, those concerns uh, were met with um, cold statistical data, uh, statistical data that wasn't available for 2022, so only for 2019 20- 2020 and 2021 so we really don't have a picture of what 2022 looks like in terms of the public safety and if all these trends that they're talking about are really trending down in the way they think they are what what kind of information were you given even if it came in the form of being talked at versus talked with or spoken with what were they telling you uh we were given uh tips and tricks on how to prevent theft in businesses uh we were told Effectively, that because of the outward uh, urban sprawl of, uh, of St. John's, that uh, they just didn't have the, uh, the time or the resources or, or didn't see it as a beneficial thing to have an increased presence every night in the downtown core. Uh, they spoke a lot about how safety is not just uh, part of the RNC, but safety is part of all of us, which is not incorrect. But at the same time, in terms of... You know, you have security in bars that can uh, that can help you. Uh, you know, in, enforce safety in your bar. But once they're on the street, once they're outside your bar, there's nothing you can do. 
and uh, and that's where in, in our minds uh, especially if somebody is you know being violent and belligerent or, or is uh, screaming at people or, or the, as we saw all summer downtown the, uh, the the stage on George Street's occupied and and people are getting more and more rowdy and uh, and being aggressive towards tourists and towards local patrons and that kind of stuff in in our minds that's the then becomes the job of the RNC to help enforce the public safety and, and help uh, keep the public safe. And it didn't seem like that was, uh, based on the information we were provided, it didn't really seem like that was their thought. When you see, whether it be musicians and bar owners or restaurant owners or cab companies and the RNC or whoever's represented at this type of meeting, this coalition, you know, talking about some long-term solutions and cleaning up and brightening up and uh, George Street and surrounding area, that's all part of it. But in the immediacy, is there any other solution beyond police presence? Like, I've been trying to think about it. You know, in places where you've got the police, for instance, riding their bicycles down through some of these nightlife uh, centers, you know, that's one thing. To see the mounted unit with a fairly frequent presence would be another feature. Or simply walking the beat in the, uh, the air of community policing of years gone by. Where's the solution beyond that? I think beyond that, and I, I do agree with him in the sense that beyond that, I think it's on all of us. I think the George Street Association needs to become more active in the actual uh, operations of the day-to-day downtown in terms of the safety of the stage, things like that. I think there's more security measures that can be put in uh, in George Street and the downtown core as a whole in terms of lighting, in terms of CCTV, in terms of uh, even putting cages or, or not necessarily cages, but some sort of a, a barrier around the stage so that people can't congregate and occupy there. I think there's a lot that we can do <clears throat> in terms of that but I think that at the end of the day uh, we have to feel motivated that if, if we're all going to put into those kinds of safety measures and we're going to put in our due diligence that that those that are tasked with protecting us are going to uh, are going to meet us uh, even halfway we'll say so I, I think for the time being that's that's, that's long term but in the short, short term, even just to help the public perception, it would uh, it would probably be beneficial to have an increased presence in the downtown core, at least for the time being. Okay, you know, the solutions, short, medium, and long term, are part of the conversation. But, you know, getting off on the right foot, the structure and agenda at meetings is actually really important to keep people engaged, to have the perception that we're actually moving uh, forward collectively. So if you had your druthers and you were going to chair the meeting, what does the structure look like? Is it a round table where you go around like we might at a board meeting, for instance? Or what would you think would be a better process than what you experienced last night? I think I think 100%. I think to have an actual open conversation, to give everyone a few moments to uh, to state their case, state you know their experience, who they were, where we were coming from, the perspective that we had, and maybe some of the concerns that we would have had with those perspectives. I think that that's all all something that could have helped, especially in an initial meeting. This is really for a lot of us. This was our first introduction to the uh, to the downtown safety coalition, as well as our first introduction to this particular branch of the RNC. And as opposed to us all being able to discuss and talk about safety and talk about the concerns that we had and, and to see the RNC's perspective on those concerns, really we were paid lip service to it feels as though. And I, I don't want that that's I don't want to throw the RNC under the bus either because from what I understand what they were what was requested of them and what was told to us, uh, the attendees, were two very different things. Uh, so I think that everybody went into that situation kind of blind last night. 
Who else should be at the table? Because one thing you have musicians, a bar owners, maybe someone from the city, the RNC. Who else should be there to give a broader understanding? Would it be mental health advocates, uh, addiction specialists? Uh, just spitballing here about who might be helpful to paint a clear picture of what we're experiencing, why we're experiencing it. Because if we don't have the full, complete picture, coming up solutions is just going to be thrown darts at the dartboard. So who else should be at, in the room? Mental health, for sure. I think uh, I think we need to we need to have healthcare engaged. I think we need to have addiction and and, uh, and that sort of thing engaged as well. I think we need the provincial government engaged. I think that we need to be engaged on every level. This is this is as much a safety issue as it is a tourism issue, as it is uh, you know a commerce issue and that kind of thing. The public safety, especially in a downtown core where there's businesses operating all day, all day long, essentially. That is an issue for everybody, especially when you get into, like we just had, one of the busiest tourism seasons we've had on record. So I think that I think that, that has to be a holistic approach at every level uh, of influence and every level of, uh, of um, you know, of, of, of government and, and whatnot locally so that we can get as many people involved, as many hands involved, and potentially affect as much change as we can in as quick a period of time. There's just so much to it, you know. It's easy enough to stand back and say, well, this individual is a problem because of X. But if you factor in, and not to be, you know, too convoluted here, but it's between... Well, it's between cost of living and inflation and affordable housing and emergency shelters and addictions and mental health and policing and commerce and real estate, you know, and tourism. I mean, we're using George Street and the downtown core as a feature of what you should do when you arrive in the city for a vacation. So it's got all of those gamuts involved. And if they're not all appropriately addressed inside the same envelope, then we're just going to come up with half-assed decisions, half-assed measures, when in fact that's just Band-Aid stuff. And we do enough of the Band-Aid applications around here completely it needs to be proactive as opposed to reactive and that's why there's a, so many of us right now that are trying to champion this cause for the downtown core because we saw uh, a lot of stuff happen this summer that we haven't seen in previous summers we saw a lot of uncomfortable tours uh, especially when they were uh, walking around downtown and i mean at, at any point when you have that many people in that confined space and that much alcohol and whatever else going on you're going to have a bit of rowdiness but you're seeing I, I think doing in, in at least some parts of the, the pandemic we had, you see a lot of people that have more mental health issues. You're seeing these things escalated because people were left in isolation for so long, people were left alone for so long. You're seeing an increase in, in drug activity and illicit drug activity, the kind of thing that makes people aggressive and makes people desperate. And you're seeing as a result of that, I think you're seeing a lot of people lash out and we don't have the resources there to help them. You know, we don't have the resources there necessarily to help with the homelessness problem, and that is leading into some of the drug problems and leading into some of these aggressions. And if we had everybody engaged, and if we, we come up with solutions, not just in terms of policing and in terms of safety, but in terms of helping homelessness, in terms of helping people get help for the addictions they have, help for the mental health issues that they have, then I think you're going to see a huge increase. But it has to be a holistic and an, an all hands on deck and engaged approach. Yeah, make it easier to get out of there and maybe uh, once again, it's the annual conversation about maybe we should close up shop a little earlier down there, encourage people who might be more inclined to go down for the concert that starts at 10 versus at midnight and everything else that goes with it. Uh, Evan, stay in touch. Your final thoughts to you before we say goodbye. I think uh, I think that's a, that's a great point there, too, on the, on the closing. Uh, as a musician myself, I know that uh, beyond a certain period of time at night, nobody really cares what's going on on stage. And so if we had earlier uh, earlier shows and earlier closing, you might have more meaningful entertainment and meaningful experiences for people downtown. But overall, my closing thoughts, I'm happy to see that things are happening. I'm happy to see that there are people that are motivated. I just hope that we're motivated in the right direction and that we engage the right people. Sounds great. Thanks for this, Evan. Appreciate your time.
Thank you, Patty. You have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Yeah, there's just a lot to it, right? Sometimes when we have these conversations, it begins and ends with where are the cops? When there's more to understand than simply whether or not there's a uniformed police officer in the area. So anyway, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, the topic, well, that's up to you. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the program. You know, in relation to the conversation we just had with Evan, and this I think would extend beyond just the downtown core of the city, St. Charles. You know, wherever we see the potential for more and more issues regarding public safety, and the comments that I get fairly regularly are that, you know, maybe just more in the... uh, the form of municipal enforcement, as opposed to the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary. You know, for starters, when you are tasking people with keeping law and order to protect and serve, to be the administrators of public safety and justice, the type of training required, and whether or not they're going to be able to carry a gun, I mean, there's just so much to it. And I'll even hear this conversation uh, when we talk about even uh, uh, traffic enforcement. For some law enforcement agencies, they'll tell you, in association with domestic violence calls, one of the places where they find the most potential danger is simply in pulling over a car for a a potential traffic infraction. So I get the thought that, you know, someone in a reflective vest that's been trained by and employed by the municipality might quiet people down. But until there's that air of authority and training and people willing to put themselves in potentially dangerous situations, I'm not so sure that that passes the so-called smell test of effectiveness, personally. Dave, where would you like me to go on this one here? Uh, One? Okay, let's go. Line number one, Tom, you're on the air. I wanted to start with um, with the bouquet to uh, Minister Hogan for announcing the sexual abuse training for judges. And, uh, you know, based on the policy resolution that they resolved in um, the November AGM, uh, I'm hoping they're going to extend that to uh, all uh, other departments that deal with, I know that's focused more on, on the sexual assault side, but, but children in particular, uh, you know, education and, and health and, and all the, and, and CSSD people that deal directly with children and create safe spaces and, and, and hopefully uh, protect our most valuable asset, our children. Yeah, I mean, the, it just makes sense. And it's important to note that it will be led by the judiciary itself. The Chief Justice Robin Fowler is working towards creating the program. They will administer the program. So it's not a top-down from the department, which is an important side, uh, side note on this, in my opinion. And I'm sure it comes across as very difficult for some judges to hear that they need this type of training. But the fact of the matter is, there's bits of, been a whole load of old stereotypes and myths and stories that are well-documented about inappropriate behavior by some jurists dealing with sexual assault cases, some of which have become such a big deal that they've turned into international events like the SLUT walk. So, you know, these are important conversations, and the appropriate level of training can only make it better for everybody, the judge themselves, both the Crown and the defense, and the accused and the victim, because if we do it right, then one of the most underreported crimes in the country will see more and more people willing and wanting to come forward, consequently, some more predators taken off the street. Yeah, and I hope that that the uh, that the legal community is also going to mirror this initiative. I mean, you know, obviously the lawyers, uh, defense lawyers, as well as prosecutors, should also receive the same training, same sensitivity. Sure. I mean, okay. we can't expect people to come forward when they see the meat grinder that 
that uh, some of these victims get put through. Yeah, and and there's, you know, a story yesterday about additional training for police officers officers in northern Ontario, which is just another step in the criminal justice ladder, maybe between paralegals and clerks and judges and both sides of the uh, aisle in the adversarial system. Maybe a bit more training and attention to it would be better for society. So anyway, I'll let you go. Go ahead, Tom. Thank you, sir. So, you know, I want to make the case today that that we're squandering our, our intergenerational inheritance, you know, what our previous generations built up in our communities. And that includes the morals and work ethics and the physical health and the infrastructure and our educational institutions. And it seems like, as I look around, I feel like we're not working like they work. And, and back in the past, family units obviously drove a lot of that, that work and, and then responsible adults, which, again, I feel like people are we're becoming less and less mature and less and less responsible collectively. And, and these people built up and they maintained all the physical infrastructure. But again, m- more importantly, creating exceptional human beings. You know, the stereotypical Newfoundlander and Labradorian that, you know, that, for example, Winston Churchill said were the best small boats people in the world. And, and you know, the steel workers and bricklayers that built the big cities in North America. And like the, the brave Newfoundlanders who went out into the cold Atlantic Ocean and rescued you know, the, the survivors of the Pollocks and the Truxton and and the Newfoundland Regiment, which was the only regiment to receive royal ascent in uh, a royal uh, title in, in, in the First World War. And, and, it's, and it seems like, you know, as I try and reflect upon, you know, where we're going wrong and, and, and what corrective action can we take. And I know one big challenge is the breakdown of the family unit. Um, you know, obviously family units are really important and and I don't know what we do there, obviously, uh, but I think trying to extend that circle out into extended family and, and, and try and refocus on refocus on the importance of morals and on work ethic. And, you know, one of the sad things, and I heard Dr. Keefe on and the lady on last week about the loss of churches is, is that we make the case that humans created churches and religions because we needed them in, in hard times. And then in good times, we forget why we created them. And if you look around the world and you can see how in places where things are more challenging, that there seems to be a resurgence in, uh, in religion and, and some of the societies that are maybe more resilient still have some spiritual f- fallback. And, and I, I just reflect upon you know, how we've allowed it to happen, that we've lost religion within our communities and within people's you know, and I know it's a, it's, it's a sense of debate, and as someone who's more like intellectual or more academic than maybe more uh, spiritual, I, you know, I look around, I look at all the young people who are lost and who seems like, like me, I just feel like meaning, meaning has gone out of people's lives. And I, I just, and I'm not saying go find meaning in religion, but I just feel like our morals, like what's, you know, a family unit broke, breaks down and we no longer have religion. I'm wondering how we expect our ourselves and our young people to find morals, to, to know what's right and wrong, and to, to learn civility, and to learn, you know, that... You know, it needs to be religion that helps with that. It, it doesn't need to be, absolutely not. And I'm not, I'm not necessarily making a case for one thing or the other. Um, I just feel like we have to have something. And as a society, we need to figure out what teaches our youth and, and young adults, and maybe even now, older adults 
how we need to conduct ourselves. Like, what, what's our next step? Like, how do we come together as a society, as a group of people? Where are where are the people that we look up to? Where, you know, who are we modeling ourselves after? Is it Kim Kardashian, you know, or is it that couple who has spent 50 years married and and have raised their families? And, and I don't know how we find those people. I don't know how young people find those people to be modeled after. And I, I think it's a big conversation. And, and as as I look as I look, strong education is important. You know that, but that education comes in many forms. It comes from the family. It comes from institutions. It comes from, in the past, it came from religion. And as someone who doesn't attend church now, uh, you know, I, I think about how I did when I was young, and that programming was put on top of me. And I, I just want to, you know, people just reflect on that. And and the, and I, because I think I think like corruption and late, you know, late laziness and dishonesty. And the things that have creep, crept in and, and just being like unhealthy, both psychologically and, and physically and financially, I just feel like we've, we've come lost. And, I, and either we're going to have to set up some sort, of, some sort of social way of doing that as a people. I mean, I just, I just feel, you know, and again, it's a big conversation. It is. Well, it starts at home, number one. Um, and secondly, you know, we have now all found the ability to arrive at an echo chamber to be validated and our endorphins uh, go crazy when someone likes our post or our picture or whatever the case may be so some of the places where the influences might have been in the school in a church at home in your social circle your nan and pop your aunts and uncles has now been overtaken by use the word social add media to that and we've got ourselves a problem people find solace and uh, motivation and inspiration from a social media influencer god only knows that most of these influencers, it's much more about gluttony and self-admiration than it is about being a good person necessarily. And I'm not trying to aggrandize, you know, one one facet of life or another. But when we rely, and so many young people spend so much time in their screen, and inside that screen is a very narrow focus on guidance of what it means to be good or kind or empathetic or compassionate or civil or whatever the right word is people are looking for, you know, it's a perfect storm. So family unit is what it once was. The attentive nature and the busy lifestyle that we all have compared to decades ago, I think, is another one. Now, of course, it's easy enough for someone to fire back and say, well, I was the parent of eight. They all turned out pretty well. You've only got two. What's your problem? <laughs> I think I think life has just changed. And at light speed or a breakneck pace. So you're the question and the scenario we're putting forward here this morning is one of those mysteries of life and the conversation we could be here for a month of Sundays and probably never get to the bottom of a better way out but most of it I think if in short summary for me and I'll give you the last word it starts at home it, it just does you know parents and there's no textbook and I don't pretend to be a good bad or a different parent because there's no way to carefully measure it and compare it across the uh, the different family units in the province but at home, you have a lot of control of how your children are going to turn out. And one measure of is to see who they knock around with. I'll throw that in there, too, because I think that goes a long way to proving who you will be in the future. Uh, last word to you, Tom, before i got to go. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, and you hit the nail on the head when you talked about families, and, and I, I feel like we've become so focused on our children, and we forget the fact that that they need to have meaning in their life. And, and sometimes by us over-doting, over-caring, over providing we've taken away their sense of purpose and their meaning in life i just encourage parents to realize think think back to think back to grandparents and think back to great-grandparents and try and go back in past in the past and realize that children who were put outside and who played hockey and didn't give get everything they wanted and and who uh 
were physically active and, and ate vegetables and ate what you put in front of them, not what they wanted. And, and I, I just think we've gone down this path, and, and, and let's spend 2023 trying to get back on a better path. Yeah, some of those, you know, bubble wrap and helicopter parent is a vastly different set of circumstances than uh, instilling or hoping to instill character and self-reflection and respect and self-respect. You know, you can indeed be a helicopter parent and still do a good job on that front, but you probably can't do both as well as they did in years past. You know, having a bit of dirt on your lip and taking a knock falling off the swing and a bit of independence and a little bit of the bells that go off in your belly or the alarms go off in your belly when you know you've done something wrong or about to do so, <laughs> those things are a little bit lost because just think about it in this very last word because I do have to go. When the school called home when I was a kid, I was in trouble. Now when the school calls home, the parents say, how dare you? So there's a long way between the boat, the two of them, isn't there? Which is part of the difference in parenting and, and outcomes. There's lots of good kids out there. Look, I kind of get a little bit frustrated when the, the call says or not your call, but when someone says, well, the kids are all rotten and the kids are all this and the kids are all lazy and they're not productive and they're not respectful, when in fact, that's not what I see at all. Now, maybe some of the headline grabbers based on their TikTok or whatever social media influencer they fall for or whatever makes it, you know, it's the sensational side of it. But there's still lots of good people doing lots of good stuff and lots of good parents turning out lots of great kids. Uh, time off I go. Appreciate the time as usual. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, let's go and take a break. When we come back, there was a pretty revealing interview done very recently with Prince Harry. I'm not a monarchist. I don't follow it very closely. You know, Harry's a bit of a firebrand, so apparently there's more information coming to light, but some of it about Harry's lifestyle. We're going to talk about that, and we're going to be speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the uh, program. Hold on, i get the headset organized here. All right, let's keep going. Line number three. Colin, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you as well. Wanted to uh, talk about Prince Harry. Okay, let's do it. His admission in his uh, new book, his memoir. Yeah, Spare. Yeah. Yeah, Spare to the Ear. He um, is quite candid about several aspects of his life, including prior drug use both in the UK and in the United States, uh, including marijuana and cocaine and magic mushrooms. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw some of this. It didn't come across as particularly earth-shattering to me that someone like Prince Harry would have indulged on those occasions. I guess the big issue is whether or not it's going to put him in hot water with the immigration authorities. Yeah, like, personally, I, you know, he, he admits to smoking marijuana and using coke. I, I don't really care. Um, and it's none of my business, but he's made a public admission now in a book. And uh, he's not an American citizen. He's a British citizen, and he's living in the United States. So I was reading an article this morning from a law prof at George Washington University. It was in The Telegraph. That uh, Harry would have been asked about prior uh, drug use when he was applying for a U.S. visa to uh, reside in the United States with his wife and, and his children. Yep. And uh, if he was truthful in, in his answers uh, on that visa application, he would have been denied uh, the visa and therefore he wouldn't be able to enter the country, right? Well, I mean, if you have a cannabis conviction in Canada, you can't go to the United States. So, yeah, I mean, it's pretty extreme for that to be the case at the border. And when you're asked, like if you're someone like Prince Harry or whoever, and you don't give full disclosure, I would imagine this will put him in a precarious spot. Yeah, even if you'd never been, uh, you know, found guilty of uh, of a drug uh, 
crime, even if you're uh, crossing the border, uh, a land border or U.S. Customs preclearance, you know, going through uh, Pearson Airport on your way down to Florida somewhere. Uh, U.S. immigration uh, officers, they have wide range of questioning powers. They can ask you basically anything you want. If you're not a U.S. citizen, you don't have an automatic right to enter, enter the country. So it's a privilege to enter the country, right? Sure. And uh, if they ask you, have you ever used marijuana, and you admit that you did, even if you've never been found guilty of, of any uh, criminal offense, including a drug offense, they can they will deny you entry into the country. And that's a permanent bar. So the question has to be asked here. Uh, according to this law prof at George Washington University, his name is Alberto Benitez, uh, Harry would have been asked about that. And if he was truthful in his answer, he would have been, he would have been denied a visa. So did he lie? And if so, what are going to be the repercussions for that? Well, was... you know, and, and, and again, I don't really care. You know, he admits to drug use. It's none of my business. I don't, I don't really care. But if that were you or me, you wouldn't get the visa, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess there's a relationship between omission and lying. And I don't know where Harry's interview lands with either or or somewhere in between, but maybe he's in a bit of trouble. Again, I really don't know. I get a little bit tired of uh, following along with the royals and their trials and tribulations. But I suppose the Americans are... I think want to make examples of people when they know that some of these decisions can grab a headline for better or worse. They're quick to do so. And this is a great opportunity for them if they want to make a point. Because it's easy enough for the unknown, unnamed uh, immigrant or uh, someone applying for citizenship to fall into this headline or this uh, category and to be dismissed and to be deported. And no one ever hears about it. But if it ever happens to Harry, no one will stop talking about it. Well, that's right. The law has to be applied uh, equally. Sure. And, and and as I say, if that were you applying to work in the United States or visit a relative down there or something like that, and you were going to U.S. Customs, and you were asked that question, or you were applying for a, you know, a permanent resident status or, or anything like that, and you were asked that question, uh, there, there are ramifications for lying on an application. If it's found out that you're lying, you're in serious criminal trouble. Sure. That's a serious criminal offense, you know? Uh, they ask these questions for a reason. Again, it's none of my, you know, personally, I, I don't really care, but they do ask these questions. And we're not just talking about marijuana, you know? We're, we're talking about cocaine, which is, uh, under U.S. drug law, is a uh, is a controlled substance, and it's a Schedule One controls controlled substance. And they view uh, cocaine as a hard drug, and they're very serious, even for possession. In the United States, it's a very serious offense, right? Sure, but I mean, unless I'm going to be actively using upon arrival and or selling or distributing or manufacturing, you know, to know that someone did it when they were a teenager and a couple of other occasions afterwards and did some magic mushrooms at Burning Man, it kind of sounds like pretty flimsy judgmental ramifications or judgments uh, to whether or not I'm allowed to come in. You know, whether a lot of them go allowed to go to Los Angeles for a visit or New York City because I did something years ago, all of a sudden that's the be all and end all as to why I can't come in. It seems a bit much. But if I'm actively going to be involved in the crime of manufacturing, distributing, selling, or what have you, then, of course, yeah, absolutely it's a problem. And it's about an omnipresent problem. But the way that we're talking about it with Harry, eh, okay. Right. I, I know people who've uh, gone through U.S. Customs preclearance in Toronto on the way down to Florida 
to Disney uh, World with their kids. Mm-hmm. And they, they admitted when they were 19, 20 that they smoked dope and they were burnt. Yeah, it must be nice to be as perfect as an American. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying. I know. You know, one rule for him, one rule for Patty Daly. Well, it wouldn't be the first time, but I totally understand the point. And if he, in between the omission and or outward lies, he could indeed find himself, I suppose, headed back to Vancouver because he's not going back to England. And he might not even get into this country. Ah, maybe not. Good to have you on, Colin. Off to the news we go. Happy New Year. Same to you. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Let's take a break. When we come back, this is an important conversation. I've been pushing the old, what was once a program at Morley University, marrying grad students with, say, for instance, seniors in the community in the home share program. There's a win-win-win available. Coming up after the break is the Interim Associate Dean of the Graduate Programs and Research at Munn School of Social Work. That's Dr. Gail Weidman, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two, say good morning to the Interim Associate Dean of Graduate Programs and Research at the School of Social Work at Memorial University. That's Dr. Gail Weidman. Dr. Weidman, you're on the air. Hi, how are you doing, Patty? Not too bad. Did I pronounce your surname properly? Yes, that's right. Thank okay. I uh, appreciate your patience, number one, and welcome to the show. Thank you. So we've talked with Sherry Ritter about what was once the uh, Home Share program. We refer to the fact that it's in place, for instance, at Simon Fraser University with great results. What can you tell us about what was once the Home Share program? And let's get into some of the results. So in, in a nutshell, what is the Home Share program that was once here and that we envision possibly for the future? Right. So the Home Share Program uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador uh, was really a pilot project that took place in 2014. And we matched, and it was uh, specific to matching um, students who are looking for housing with seniors who were overhoused or were looking for someone with uh, to provide a bit of support to them. Uh, So things like Uh, snow shoveling, help with meal preparation, um, maybe just socialization, the visit, just having somebody nearby. So there was, so the, the idea of home share was that we made a match. So we matched students needs with seniors needs. So, you know, whatever that particular match was looking for, we were able to, um, find, uh, appropriate individuals that, uh, you know, with a moderate bit of oversight, so if there were any any things that uh, weren't going well or disagreements or misunderstandings, we had a, a coordinator in place who was able to um, help problem solve. So it was really, um, you know, like any kind of um, matching program, it was really about the... Uh, managing the relationship and managing expectations about the relationship but the end result was a a, a sort of a niche program that um, you know enabled uh, housing affordable housing for students and um, a little bit of income for seniors plus uh, a little bit of extra support not care not we're not talking about personal care when we're not at that level but the kind of moderate supports that many older adults need just to be able to um, remain in their homes 
it really sounds like a win-win-win situation because we've got that <laughs> affordable housing crunch here. We've heard the stories coming from Memorial University this year. We know the mm-hmm. numbers of seniors struggling with costs and maybe an extra few dollars in their pocket and home share duties. Mm-hmm. Then this mm-hmm. just sounds so good. Why did it go by the wayside? Well, I, I think it, if you think about the time frame, so 2013, 2014, and then the new 500-bed um, uh, residence was created at, at at Memorial University. So that driver sort of was lost. So although the pilot was successful, the driver for the funding um, kind of fell by the wayside. I think it's, it's a multi-level uh, partnership that needs to happen. Um, so between university, um, housing, and, and those things are complicated. And who every, it's kind of one of those great ideas that nobody wants to pay for. <laughs> Given the complexities, how was success measured? So we actually did um, a couple of things. We just we we took into account sort of the numbers of people that were interested in home share over the pilot, which was only two years. We ended up with 35 um, matches, uh, so 70 individuals, and um, so we basically did interviews uh, with the older adults and with the students who were. Um, receiving the housing so the home sharers basically we did qualitative interviews with both of those parties we just looked at um the kinds of things that made it work uh the any problems that arose the things that uh were were problematic and weren't able to be resolved so we basically did a um a kind of logic model evaluation looking at what were the mechanisms that really um, could make this successful. So one of the key things was that was the oversight provided by the coordinator. It really does require someone um, to be in place to sort of help manage relationships and, as I said before, relationships and expectations. So, um, you know, it can't operate solely on a referral model, so solely linking people. There had to be some kind of um, supportive uh, oversight there as well. Um, so that's what made it work, really, and and that's what people told us. So you start back to your question, what did we look at in terms of measuring the success? We basically looked at the numbers, and we looked at um, what people told us about why it worked and what they told us about what was problematic and how we could resolve that. Is there an appetite at Memorial? I put this question directly to Dr. Timmons, the president, and I put it to Vice President Lisa Brown. They hadn't had any discussion at the executive level about it. I don't know if they ever will. But do you think there's an appetite to see this reintroduced? Because it seems to me that the need is there for all involved, the seniors, the students, and the university itself. Oh, I, I agree. Um, I'm as part of my role. I meet with uh, graduate officers across campus. So all of us who are responsible for graduate students, and um, you know, we have conversations about the you know the struggle with housing, especially for international students. Um, and and I just want to add that it, one of the things that we found that it was in particular. Um, uh, 
a real benefit to international students who were coming from away and just needed um, what they talked about was the more home-like environment they experienced uh, with uh, home share as opposed to being in a residence. I mean, it's not for everybody and it's not for every older adult either, but with the with this um, component of, of matching and support, we were able to make it work for a lot of people. And it would provide an additional tie to the community. Yet another reason for an international student and an international graduate to want to maybe stay. So there's lots of other additional benefits associated with it. What was the annual budget for the pilot? I seem to recollect in the neighborhood of $40,000. Is that right? Uh, And now you've got me there. I'm not entirely clear on what the... uh, the dollar amount was, but it really, the budget would be um, to pay for the coordinator. That was what the, um, that was the sole sort of budget line was to pay for the coordinator. Uh, I'd like to extend the conversation just a little further with some of your focus areas as a professor. So, I mean, we're talking about the benefit to seniors with a few extra dollars in their pocket and, of course, the, some of the duties around the home, but even the work of the health court. And we're talking a lot about the aging demographic and, you know, building long-term care beds. We won't get into the P3 facet of it, but we talk more and more about the institutional uh, aspect of aging as opposed to aging in place and the dignity and safety uh, associated with it. We don't mm-hmm. seem to focus too much on it versus all the advice we've been given by whether it be Suzanne Brake, Susan Walsh, the health accord itself. Where should we be looking and how should we be talking about aging in place and home care supports versus how many long-term care beds we build? Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. I heard in an earlier uh, segment of your show talking about the fact that life is changing and, and how do we respond to, <laughs> to life changing. And I mean, I think one of the things that we've um, been dealing with here in Newfoundland and Labrador is, a, is, is not just an aging um, population, but a change in uh, the way families are able to support each other, especially in rural Newfoundland and Labrador. And I think that one of the things I've talked about many times is um, the the idea of volunteer development. So not just um, assuming that people are going to be able to step up to help their older uh, residents age in place without some kind of support, like the support I'm talking about in relation to home share. So, you know, we need to develop a volunteer model that um, enables volunteers to feel confident that the situations they get into uh, in assisting older adults to age in place uh, they're going to have some support. They're going to have a backup. They're going to have somebody to call if things um, seem to begin to be unmanageable. If, for example, you know, I'm helping out this, helping out my neighbor get groceries with some transportation, but now I want to leave the province and go down south for six months, and who's going to help that person? Well, that volunteer manager is then able to put a backup in place. So, you know, what I'm saying is that we need to, and I've talked about this to the Health Accord Committee, and they were very receptive. We need to think about what are those really low-level supports we can put in place to enable neighbours to help neighbours, Um, family members to find support for their family members that are living away in a rural community. So it's, you know, it's just, um, it it seems a really cost-effective kind of solution. 
I know in BC, one of the programs I've been working with is called NavCare, and this is exactly what they're doing, is um, providing a, a moderate amount of training to volunteers in communities who want to be available to um, help their older residents age in place, but they don't want to do it on their own. They want to have some support in doing that, and that's a volunteer management uh, program. So who, I don't know, who who would take that on, whether it would be a health authority or, a, you know, um, we find that um, that level of support that was provided in churches, that was provided by, um, you know, other organizations and communities is kind of falling away because they are themselves aging. So we need to find a way to support those what I've been calling intermediate organizations. We have to find a way to support that level of um, resource in the communities, especially in rural places. It sounds about right to me. And we also need to see a bit more flexibility, in my opinion, at the provincial government level, because if someone has more complicated needs and needs more and more hours of home care, whether it be to assign some pay for a family member or a loved one who'd like to take on that role and has the required training, because if we're talking about cost effectiveness and happiness and contentment and safety, mm-hmm. aging mm-hmm. in place in your own home has all of those benefits versus what some people might have a great life in a long-term care or a personal care home, but so many more would like to stay at home, and the costs of being in an institution versus in your mm-hmm. house with appropriate levels of care are vastly different, and we come out on the win side on every front mm-hmm. if we figure that out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm totally on board with that uh, approach. I think we've, um, we know that most people want to age and die at home, age and die in place, and we need to be able to put the support around them enable, uh, to enable that to happen. Very last one before I let you go. You just mentioned dying in place as well. Mm-hmm. Palliative care, we've extended some of those opportunities to paramedics, for instance, and we know that they're yeah. stretched thin. And we've got the Lionel Kelland Hospice, which is a nice addition to the palliative care world. How different mm-hmm. does that need to be approached, rural versus urban? Because we have different options in the city versus what we have in more rural parts of the province. For instance, like the Miller Center is not everywhere. So how do we approach palliative care in rural? Mm-hmm. That's a great question and, and something that I've been working on for some time. Um, palliative care, we talk about, or I talk about in my research, upstream palliative care. So getting supports in place long before death is imminent. So what do we need to put in place in people's homes so that they can um die comfortably at home. Now, it's, I am also, having just experienced palliative care in my own family, aware that this looks can look very different in your head than what it looks like in real life. We have to be realistic about that, about what, what kinds of um, needs occur at the end of life. But I'm, I, I really want to think about upstream palliative care. So, you know, again, the kind of volunteer support that I've described, um, access to uh, equipment in homes, access to um, a sort of nursing oversight in people's homes. Right now, I feel there there is um, lots of great people in palliative care around our, our, our province, but there isn't a more intentional kind of... Um, uh, program in place that really looks at that upstream piece, that 
um, you know, that, you know, what kinds of things people talk about, well, I didn't know that that support was available to me, that I could get that bed or I could get assistance buying, um, you know, the the, uh, the kinds of um, equipment and supplies I need to be able to comfortably care for my loved one at home. And if we had that upstream piece in place, I think it would, it would generate a more... Um, you know, appropriate uh, kind of support to people who wish to die at home or keep their loved ones at home. Again, you know, it's a very complex time of life, and I don't want to, um, I don't want to understate the fact that it is a difficult um, role. But I think for people who choose and people who are able to, we need to do a better job of uh, of supporting them. And nor do I uh, want to uh, paint any light of the, that it's not complicated or it's simple solutions mm-hmm. available. So, And there's never a one-size-fits-all. So expanding the hospice model and incorporating paramedics yeah. and or planning for end of life, all in conjunction, probably make for a much better landscape than we have today. Uh, Dr. Weidman, sure, appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Patty. Take good care. Bye-bye. That's Dr. Gail Weidman. She is the uh, Interim Associate Dean of Graduate Programs and Research at the School of Social Work at Memorial University. Let's take a break. When we come back, who are we talking to, Dave? Let's get someone in the queue. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. So uh, I guess it was off the top of the program. Talking about whether it be the Auditor General's look at some of the COVID support programs, in particular the most expensive, which was the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy, to the tune of uh, $100.7 billion. The comment I went on to, based on what we heard from Bill Mordo anyway, in his interview with Vasi Kapolos the other night, he was in one hand impressed with the -the on-the-fly decisions to craft some of these support programs, and then he goes on in the same breath to say that the government probably overspent in COVID supports. Maybe so. It's certainly a huge amount of money. The biggest percentage of our GDP since the Second World War went to one initiative, in this case, pandemic supports. I said, I don't know how we can uh, really or realistically or appropriately evaluate whether or not they spent too much, too little, on time, too late, too early, whether or not the appropriate oversight, monitoring, anything was in place, because I don't know what we compare it to. That's the only point I'm making. Look, I didn't get any COVID supports because I was lucky enough to continue working throughout the, uh, the pandemic, which I suppose is at some stage of endemic at these days. Whether or not that means we've just given up on it, I'll leave that up to you. So that's the comment. Is not a check mark or a passing grade for anybody and or a failure because I don't know what we compare it to. I do know when the uh, former finance minister says that, you know, the prime minister was looking more at popularity decisions versus economic policy because Morneau's job would have been trying to steer the economy through the pandemic. Of course, that was his role. He was minister of finance. The question I suppose we ask ourselves, and I would hope that opposition politicians and members of government ask themselves, is what kind of economy would have been there to steer through the pandemic had the supports not been in place to the tune they were? Now, was $2,000 a month too much? I don't know. Were people who did not need the $2,000 a month, who maybe, for instance, were students living at home, but they had a part-time job of which they lost somewhere all hours, did they need that $2,000? It's a fair conversation. So whether or not it was too much money or too quick or without the required oversight, it's all going to boil back to a matter of opinion and a matter of politics because we just simply do not have anything to measure it against. We just don't. Like, what could be an example? World War II? No. I mean, talk about the epitome of apples and oranges on that front. So 
I get it. There's a bit of a tell-all book coming out from Mr. Morneau on the 17th of the month. I'll probably give it a skim. But where we go from there, I would imagine just boils down to opinion and what political party that you favor. And we can take that on here. Talking about pandemic supports, there is another pot of money out there for community organizations right across the country who are trying to come back from any financial losses or struggles that they face since 2020. It's the Community Services Recovery Fund. There's some $400 million in it. Apparently, our slice of the pie are some 1.5%. You know, it's simply based on the way we distributed all kinds of stuff, test kits, vaccines, the rest of it. So some $3 million to be distributed to uh, applicants right across this province. They They have a deadline that's approaching. It's the 21st of February. If you're one of those community-based not-for-profits, charities, indigenous groups, if you've had some issues with sustainability, efficiency, financial losses, there is that pot of money out there for you to avail of as well. Another bit of clapback or pushback of uh, early comments this morning was about 3D guns. I think someone maybe misheard my thoughts on Bill C-21, even though your thoughts are more important than mine on these issues, is I think Bill C-21, if you speak to people who actually understand firearms and what firearms are on the banned list, if there's a distinct issue with one firearm has whatever capacity uh, and it's banned, but the exact same, albeit with a different manufacturer model number, is not banned, then that leads me to believe that it wasn't exactly well thought through, especially when we're talking about public safety. So I think going back to the drawing board to get that piece of legislation right is paramount. It's important because, you know, we'll hear the legal uh, law-abiding gun owner and their concerns. Fair enough. They know more about the firearms than I do. But even for a lay person on the outside looking in, if one firearm does this and it's banned and one does the exact same thing and it's not, there's a problem. The comment went down further where I extrapolated the public safety issue with guns is to the 3D ghost gun, the gun that can be printed at home. It's absolutely a problem. I don't know how anyone could see that as being anything but problematic. With other handguns, there will be serial numbers. Or with other guns, period, or weapons or firearms, there will be serial numbers. It's not the case with the 3D gun. They're 100% uh, untraceable, consequently why they call them a ghost gun. The serial number is printed on the receiver part of the gun but it's not in 3D. So they can go to a gun store, they can go online and buy every part required that they don't print at home to complete building a handgun. So if the police have confiscated 100 or so in the last year, you know full well that that number is absolutely at least 10 times that, if not more, with the number of 3D printed ghost guns that are in the hands of whoever. And you know, I mean, just think about it. Some people might do it to save on the expense of buying a handgun, but you got to believe that most of these guns are headed for the hands of people who are going to commit crimes with these guns and or use them for intimidation on the streets, whether it be in the drug trade or whatever the case may be. So this is where government has a hard time keeping up on the innovator front. So there has been penalties increased for the importation of illegal handguns from the United States from 10 to 14 years. That's a good idea. We need to spend more time, focus, and money at the border to reduce the number of weapons coming in the door. And we've got to have the punishment commensurate with the crime. And the same thing goes for these handguns being printed at home on a printer, a 3D printer. If indeed it proves or bears out to be true that most of these guns are headed for gangsters' hands, then there's got to be maybe a different approach taken to the charge that is applied and the punishment that's applied if and when convicted in the court of law about the gun itself. Should it be just 100% illegal to print a gun at home? Probably. 
without the ability to trace it, it becomes a massive problem that can change hands repeatedly over the life uh, of the lifespan of that particular gun. So I do think it maybe is a different charge. I do think it's maybe a more severe punishment. Same thing when we talk about drugs. You know, if you're willfully putting some of the most dangerous drugs, mixing it in with other street drugs, for instance, fentanyl or carfentanil, if it's found to be in your drug supply that you're busted with as a trafficker, Maybe there is a different charge that comes with it. Same thing with these 3D guns, in my opinion. But anyway, that opinion can be shared and or rebutted by you. Let's check in on the Twitter box, see what folks are saying there this morning. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openline.vocm.com. When we come back, the topic will be entirely up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Some interesting uh, comment from a listener regarding the 3D printer, which is sometimes used to print a gun. Register the printer. Okay, the question I would have there is register the printer gets me what exactly? Is that can I trace back if we confiscate a gun somewhere? Can I trace it back to your printer? Does it have a distinct footprint? Like, I mean, even the printer in my office here, there are marks that are pretty much impossible to see to, with the naked eye that can identify the printer that printed one document or another. So maybe registering the printer is a step in the right direction. And this from an, a listener, an emailer, regarding tinted windows. You know, every now and then we'll hear law enforcement and others talk about the loud pipes, whether it be on cars or motorcycles or what have you. And then we hear some warnings every now and then about tinted windows on your vehicle. Here's the question and the email from this particular person. I'd like to know your view and position on vehicles with aftermarket dark tinted windows on the front windows, because you're allowed to have it on the past, pardon me, the back windows if you have a four-door car, and it's no problem. The tint issue comes with whether it be the windscreen and, or of course, your passenger window and your driver's side window in the front of a four-door sedan. So this person contacted the RNC, who assured me that it is a violation of the Newfoundland Labrador traffic laws, but they go on to say it's hard to enforce. Now, you see some very gently tinted front windows, which don't seem to pose much of a problem. You can still make eye contact, for instance. But here's the, as it goes on, to tell this particular fellow's tale. This has come about with me as I was cut off and almost hit by a car with these windows tinted out. I could not see or identify the driver. I was able to get the license number and did report to the police. They did say they rarely issue fines for this. Since this happened, I'm paying more attention to car windows. I've noticed it is rampant and not in any one segment, from tuners to the luxury models, new and old. And he asked two questions. It causes a concern at crosswalks where you cannot see the driver. Absolutely right. And I would think you can extend that to even if you come to a stop sign and I'm tending on turning right or the person coming towards you and they can't see because of the tilt of your car, the angle that your car is at, whether or not you have an indicator on to go uh, right and or you're intending to go straight ahead. So eye contact is one of the best safety mechanisms we all have as pedestrians and as motorists. It goes a long way to telling the intention of either or when you make eye contact with, so that's a good one. He also goes on to wonder if it impairs night vision. I don't know, but I would imagine it doesn't help. If you have extremely dark windows, then that just leads me to believe that you probably don't have as clear a view and your pupils are unable to accommodate any light out there because it's restricted, one, by the darkness itself outside your vehicle, and number two, by the darkly tinted windows on your vehicle. So those are pretty good questions. When law enforcement says it's difficult to enforce, where does that difficulty lie? Because when we have the loud pipe conversation, you can just buy a Canadian tire or a decibel meter, and the rules are clear about what is an acceptable level of noise, 
and loudness so you can measure it. With the darkness one, I don't know if there's a go-to mechanism or tool that police can utilize to say, well, your windows are simply too dark. Is it about eyeballing it and coming up with a best guess as to whether or not they are exceeding the tinted level allowed by the traffic laws? I don't know, but that's an interesting one about tinted windows. And back to, and I was browbeat pretty severely overnight regarding uh, snow tires. And I, I just said yesterday, maybe a conversation regarding mandatory snow tires during the winter season for your safety and the safety of everyone around you, uh, fellow motorists and or pedestrians. I did say that I understand there's an affordability issue. It's expensive. It's expensive to have a full set of all seasons for seasons outside winter. And yes, it's expensive to have a set of winter tires. Now, if you end up in a collision or you strike an individual, a pedestrian, because you didn't have winter tires, then the insurance premium, which is going to impact us all, is going to impact you most notably. You know, the cost recovery uh, insurance premiums versus the cost of winter tires might be a consideration in your calculation. But I get it. It's, it's an affordability issue. There was one fellow wrote an email that said that when his pal went to get insurance and made a conversation or asked questions about winter tires, the carrier said that if you have a collision or an incident with your car, your vehicle, with no winter tires, you're not going to cover your claim. Now, I don't know if that's across the board with insurance brokers and providers, but that was the reaction that this one person got. And then the next person wrote an email about uh, winter tires was that they had to use a rental because their vehicle is in the shop and the relationship they have with their car dealer is that it's they'll get you a rental for X number of days while you try to deal with the issue. And of course, the rental car, no winter tires. So in some provinces, winter tires are absolutely part of the rental fleet. Last time I rented a car in the province of Quebec, it had winter tires. But they are not obliged to have a winter tire on your rental. Just imagine if you came from a more sunny or temperate climate where this type of icy and snowy conditions wasn't your normal uh, driving issue. And then you come, say, to here or anywhere in the country where you're going to see the winter conditions as they are today presenting themselves in metro. Isn't if you, and if you don't have winter tires. I mean, it's tricky enough to navigate winter roads with the appropriate rubber. But just imagine getting into a rental as a visitor and or a local, and you'd love to have the protection and the, the traction associated with a winter tire, but you don't because there's not even winter tires on the rental. All right, if someone wants to talk about 3D printers, perfect. Mark on one, you're on the air. Hi there. Uh, my son's got one of those 3D printers, and uh, what I can tell you right now, the 3D printer only prints what the software tells it to print. So it's not uh, the printer that's the problem, it's the software. Sure, that makes sense to me. Yeah, uh, so that's going to be uh, even trickier because, hey, how do you register software, especially when it's uh, an image yeah, I don't know. And I don't pretend to know much about a lot of technology, but that's a good question. Now, if I download software from one of the notable providers, it comes with a registration ID. But I assume in the world where people are willing to teach you how to make mm -hmm. a bomb or to how to print a gun, that's done very much in the cover of darkness as opposed to a registration number I'd be familiar with. Yeah. Yeah. And in a lot of cases, this is going to be an image that gets downloaded. So that image is not going to have 
a registration number because, like you said, it's going to be in the dark web. And, you know, again, it's the software. It's that image that's driving the printer. Help me understand how the printer works. So I know that 3D printers have actually been used to build a house. So obviously the applications are massive. So is it as simple as I have my 3D printer connected to my internet and I can download whatever image and simply the image alone guides the printer as opposed to any more inputs required? That's it. Simple as that. The printer has really little to no intelligence. It's taking commands you know, to squirt out whatever material you want at a point and then move it to another point and it just drops the material in those spots. Oh. So if it's moving plastic like my son's printer, hey, it just it can make whatever you want. You can uh, you know make a little toy dragon and it it'll just, you know, drop the plastic pot into a specific spot and it cools right there if you're building a house it's dropping concrete in certain spots it's it's fascinating stuff what kind of cost is it associated with getting into a 3d printer ah that there ranges all over the place small ones are a few hundred dollars Uh, a good one will be a little over a thousand what kind of stuff does your son print? Uh, is it things like action figurines or the toy dragons or what have you? Well, he's done that. Uh, in addition, you know, he, he's made, like, uh, parts. You know, something breaks. He can take, draw up a part himself, and, you know, make... Actually, he did it for his uncle. He made a, a, a handle for a mousetrap that broke. So he took that and he actually took a 3d scanner took a scan of it got all the dimensions and then printed off uh, a new part so he actually you know it was a repair it's kind of intriguing it, it is it's fascinating and it sounds like it could be potentially a very helpful tool but like most helpful tools they can be used for things less than helpful and that's that's the only yeah. issue i'm making with these particular ghost guns i mean if someone's printing action figurines or handles for buckets or mouse traps, mm-hmm. that's brilliant and it sounds like it's pretty cool stuff to be able to do in your own home but of course it's oh, yeah. the nefarious side of it that we'd worry about oh yeah it, it, it's it, it's it's like the internet itself it's like a big city Right. You have good things, you have bad things. Yes, sir. That you do. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's really intriguing. You know, it, something that was designed for good, yes, somebody has figured out how to do it, use it for evil. Always the case. And when it's the issue regarding the Internet or innovation or technology, governments and law enforcement agencies and the justice departments have a wicked time keeping up. It just moves too quick because government is not known for moving quickly, more, much more known for moving at a glacial pace. Oh, yes, I know. And some of this stuff, it moves so fast. I know I've been in the computer industry for, uh, for well, I'm retired now, but it's probably close to 50 years. And I'll tell you, it has changed. Everything I learned when I was in school is gone. (laughs) And it's just bigger, better, smaller. Everything has changed. 
that it has yeah. keeping up is difficult for individuals let alone government mm-hmm. and government agencies Mark I appreciate uh-huh. the additional info because I don't really know how a 3D printer works but I know a little bit more about it now yeah it's an intriguing device sounds like it it really is thank you Mark you're welcome take good care bye bye yeah of course you can use it for all kinds of great stuff and fun stuff it's the other stuff that's not so great, and that's where law enforcement and governments and policymakers and people who deal with uh, amendments to the criminal code, that's where they've got to be a little bit more quick and nimble. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, cost of living. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's call line number two. Say good morning to the PC member for Stephenville Port of Port. That's Tony Wakeham. Good morning, Tony. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Uh, happy New Year to you, first of all, and to your family. I wanted to call in today on a couple of issues, uh, one being cost of living and the other being French immersion in my district. On the cost of living, it was disappointing to hear the minister almost double down on her commitment to keeping the uh, sugar tax in place. And uh, at a time when people are struggling and continue to struggling, inflation continues to run at 7%. I don't understand the logic of insisting on, on on hurting people because that's exactly what this has done it's fine to introduce this as a policy decision to try to modify behavior in people and to help them move away from sugary drinks but at this point in time we don't know if that's actually working but what we do know it's costing people more every time they go to the store and right now people don't need that extra cost I also know and you know that the budget is being prepared at the present time in next year's budget. So it's time for the minister to decide that, no, we're going to eliminate the sugar tax and we need to do it. She needs to come out and make that statement now and give people some hope because that's one of the biggest things that uh, people don't have right now. They need help. They do. The the sugar tax, as big a problem is the additional cost, is the confusion about how and where it's applied and to what product it's applied to. That's been a real mess, which is not helping at all. But let's just, because we're talking, talking hypotheticals, let's take it one step further. If the government and the distributors of these beverages can prove that there's been a change in people's buying habits and they've moved away from some of the heavier sugar content drinks and what that means for, for instance, healthcare, is there a measure, Tony, where you would be on side if it did indeed change people's intake of sugary products or is it simply an unnecessary tax that you should you think should be axed regardless? I think uh, the distributors and the people that I talked to in industry had seen that trend already. That trend was already happening where people were moving away from sugary drinks. They didn't need an extra burden placed on them of taxation to make this happen. And so that's been the trend. But right now, people who can least afford be paying extra taxes. And as you said, it's been nothing but confusion uh, since it was first introduced on what gets taxed, what doesn't get taxed. And it's unnecessary. If we really want to help people, then let's have a solid education program. Let's keep them informed and let's offer them other choices. But I don't think that people need taxation to modify their behavior. Yeah, because we've used it as a tool, but not a standalone tool. When it came to, for instance, tobacco products, it had a bunch of different moves. You know, there was more taxation to make it more expensive. Then there was the change in the packaging and doing away with the colors and the way it's displayed in the shop and the large or the very expensive and broad media campaigns talking about the dangers, curriculum in schools. So it wasn't just a tax. It was all of those things, which has not really been a feature of a sugar tax wherever it's been implemented. 
no, I think it was ill-conceived and uh, and needs to be eliminated and accept the fact and uh, help people by not hurting them by implementing taxes like this. We also know, of course, what's going to happen to uh, the carbon tax and how that's going to have a significant impact. It's already having an impact on people when it comes to gasoline and stuff. But come April, uh, you know, the idea of a carbon tax now being applied to home heating fuel I mean, surely the federal government and the provincial government must realize that this is not having the impact that people are expected to have. Newfoundland and Labrador, and I would argue other parts of Canada, you know, the idea that you can uh, drive your car less because you have alternate means of transportation. That hockey mom who wants to take her son or daughter to uh, hockey practice has to drive. There aren't a whole lot of options available to them. Those persons that want to go to their medical appointments, you know, we do not have a public transportation infrastructure in this province. So people have to use their vehicles. And yes, people do car share. We see that a lot when people are traveling to work, for example, and moving into coming to and from St. John's, they carpool lots. But those are things that people do automatically. And right now, you know, with the high cost of inflation, the high cost of pricing, the last thing that people need is a government putting carbon tax. And I really find it ironic that the federal minister would argue that, oh, we're going to give it back to people. But why are you taking it in the first place? And what they don't tell you is what they're not giving you back is the extra 15 percent they're charging on that tax called HST. So this is, again, another tax grab. It needs to be reevaluated, and decisions need to be made before April 1st. In years past, and not just on carbon tax, but conservative ideology very much was in line with uh, pressure on price point, and the market will solve most, if not all, of our issues, whether it be my behavior as a consumer and or the way that the government behaves and or the way the businesses behave or thrive or die. It hasn't been the case in recent past. So if not carbon tax as a behavioral tool, what do you think can be something, because we've seen uh, oil rebate monies put forward, uh, monies out there if you want to move away from furnace oil into uh, electric heat and what have you. So if it's not market pressure and price point, what do we do on these fronts? Or is there, because there's been an ideological shift here. At one point, for instance, Stephen Harper was a carbon tax guy, but now since the liberals brought it in, now all of a sudden it's the devil in disguise. So where do we go with encouraging different alternative behaviors, whether it be for our health and or uh, greenhouse emissions? Again, I come down to, I think the idea is not, not to do it through taxation, but through, through technology and make changes and, and, and investing in those uh, projects that actually have an opportunity to make our country greener. I believe Newfoundland and Labrador has uh, done more to make Canada green than many other provinces when you think of all of the hydroelectricity developments and everything that have taken place or and, and, are, and potentially can take place sure. in the province, the shift to wind energy. There's lots of things that we can be doing that will make us a greener place to live and can be done without simply taxing the people who can least afford it. I think there's an argument to be made about keeping uh, carbon tax off of home heating fuels or what have you in this province, given the fact that even quietly and sometimes out loud, the federal government has viewed 
hydro, in particular muskrat, as a nation-building exercise because we're going to get, be able to get Nova Scotia off more and more coal-fired generation. If that's true and we're doing our part and punching above our weight and helping other provinces at the exact same time, that's an argument for removing carbon tax from home heating fuel for me. You know, we needn't talk about fairness and cold and seniors and stuff. We have done our part to help other provinces, in, especially Nova Scotia. That's the beginning of the argument for me. And if that's not acceptable, how can they consider hydro being the uh, nation-building exercise? Patty, and that's a good point because it's not only about that. It's about if they really believe that, then it's about taking an equity stake in that project. Never mind giving us more money so that we can have a loan guarantee and borrowing more money because that's exactly where it starts. Because if the federal government really believes in this and, and hydroelectricity and the future, that it can happen, then that's what they need to be part of the solution. Uh, fair enough. I think you want to talk about French immersion, which we can get to quick. But before I forget, we've seen Mr. Brazel say he's going to take another look at the leadership. And Mr. Parrott said that he was having a look at it. How about Tony Wakeham? Tony Wakeham has been uh, had a lot of calls from all across the province of Newfoundland and Labrador and uh, seriously considered, and I'll make up my mind in a very short order. Do you think it's incumbent on the party and the electorate to see a new permanent leader in place sooner than later so we can get a feel for where the party's headed? It's certainly been a long process. I mean, the process itself now won't uh, won't happen until the leader, the new leader, won't be announced till till October of next year. But at the same time, David Brazel has done an excellent job as interim leader. He has done an outstanding job of keeping government's uh, feet to the fire and about uh, holding them accountable for the decisions they make. and uh, And I look forward to continuing to work with David Brazel. Fair enough. I'll I'll give you a chance to talk about French immersion quick before we get to the news. Go ahead. Yeah. So what's happening, Patty, is recently a letter came out to the uh, uh, parents in uh, in the district of Stephenville, Portport, especially Stephenville area, Stephenville Primary School, that basically said there's no guarantee of a French immersion program next year uh, for Stephenville, even though 40% of the uh, people going to kindergarten next year want to have French immersion, want to enter French immersion. And so it really goes back to, you know, when you think about my district, the historical significance, the cultural significance of that particular area in terms of the French heritage and stuff. And quickly, I'll tell you one quick story. And it came from a gentleman who went to school in the old area where the base uh, was located and placed. They used to refer to it as the Pond School and then the Convent School. And he basically said two things that stood out. He said, when I started school, I wasn't able to speak English, nor did anyone else. English was taught, and we were strapped for speaking in French, as well as being forced to speak English while at school. That didn't stop us from speaking French after school, though. But I do know that I didn't want my children to be strapped for speaking French, so I decided not to teach them how to speak French. Many people are choosing French immersion for their children because their own family story is similar. And they want their children to regain that lost language. And the threat of losing French immersion in this particular area, in the Stephenville Port-a-Port region, what I would consider the French capital of Newfoundland and Labrador, is just not good enough. So government needs to make sure and guarantee the people that French immersion program will be available in the Stephenville Port-a-Port region and in the Stephenville Primary School next year. Yeah. I don't think that's too much to ask for. It's like the situation in uh, Marystown at Sacred Heart. There's one gap of a strong enrollment in French immersion, so they're taking it away. If you take it away, you're going to be hard-pressed to get it back. And don't take it from me, but the research done in French immersion, they, it comes with a variety of positives beyond simply speaking a second language. Creativity, problem-solving. 
following, there's a lot to be said for how big and important it can be for French immersion. It does create some additional opportunities in this world as well. So, yeah. Anyway, Tony, appreciate the time. Thanks for this. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Tony Wakem is the member for Stephenville Port-a-Port. Time for the news. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Stella, you're on the air. Well, good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. How about you? Good, thank you. Good. So I'm calling about yesterday I watched a piece on CBC News for a a resident in Mount Pearl uh, regarding her... uh, rental of her propane tank with North Atlantic Petroleum. And um, so, of course, I have a a rental from North Atlantic Petroleum as well. And um, basically, she received her rental uh, renewal in the mail, and her renewal had gone up by 102% for the fee for her rental this year. And in the letter, it stated that it was due to the fact that uh, anybody who uses less than 250 liters uh, will pay an added fee. So I called North Atlantic Petroleum this morning and um, spoke to a young lady, and I inquired about my bill. So when my bill comes out in March, I too will have a bill for $199 for the rental of the tank. So I asked her, you know, so basically you're penalizing me because I don't use a lot of propane. And she said, no. She said, that's not what it is. It's not a penalty. She said, it's a decision that management made because uh, essentially they're not making any money off me. I think it's very much akin to the furnace oil providers who say there's a minimum amount of liters that they'll deliver because most of their delivery drivers are subcontractors. And to make it worth their while, they need to pump X number of liters into your tank versus I just want $100 worth, say, for instance. So I guess that's very similar to uh, how North Atlantic is approaching it. And I did speak to Ms. Cox's circumstance off the top of the show this morning because we can all anticipate, as much as we don't want to suffer uh, steeper prices, we know they're coming. But it's when they don't come in an incremental fashion versus it went from 99 to 199 in one fell swoop and as you rightfully point out 102 percent increase that becomes not only unmanageable for most but unacceptable for, for everyone i would think exactly so even if they had to do it in an incremental process it wouldn't be so hard i mean you know 20 50 dollars even uh, added on to the bill i mean we all anticipate increases we've had increases numerous increases throughout this whole process of the last two to three years and we know that but i mean to jump that high i i, I mean and Fortunately, we are in a position, fortunately, that we can afford to pay that. That's not the issue. It's just the fact that now here we are, and now we have this bigger bill to pay, which, again, we're fortunate we can pay. But it's the principle of it that, that you know, there's no, there's no uh, easing yourself into it. I mean, you're right, it's, it, and I understand this, but it's just, you know, and I said to her, I said, well, if I, I'll remove my tank and I'll get my own tank. And it costs $200 to remove a tank. 
Yeah, and in this case, she brokered a deal with North Atlantic to have the tank removed for free and reimbursed for the last bit of propane in it. I think it was 70 liters or what have you. But if okay. you know there's incremental uh, increases coming, then you get to make a plan for yourself, whether yeah. or not you think you can afford the pending increases or you're going to look for an alternative. But when it comes yeah. all in one, it's that bit of sticker shock, number one, and then it's the trying to do battle with one provider or another, whether it be insurance or telecom or propane or furnace oil or whatever it is, when you don't see something coming, it hits you twice as hard. Indeed, it does. Yeah, it's a tricky piece of business. (laughs) And I I added to it the issue where there's a friend of mine who his oil tank has expired. He needs a new tank. He understands it. He told his provider. They told him, when you get down to a quarter tank, give us a call back. He called them back and they said, okay, we're booking tank replacements for three weeks out. Then why'd you tell me to call with the quarter tank left? Because the quarter tank's not going to last me. So, you know, the the customer, the consumer, the supplier, the distributor, we've all got to get back on the same page a little bit more because it's so disjointed now. And I know there's lots of pressures coming at all hands, but it's got to work for everybody. You're going to cost yourself customers, which is bad business. You're going to stress people out, which is bad business. So we've just got to get a little bit back in line here, a little bit more on the same page, know exactly what we think might be coming. Nothing's going to be set in stone. But give me a, a decent idea so that I can make my own plans. Exactly. Yes, and, and like myself and that other lady, you know, we're, we're fortunate. But there's people that are not so fortunate that they don't they have their propane possibly there as an emergency for, you know, in case power outages and things of that nature. So there are people out there that uh, probably don't just under the mark of the 250 liters or the 200. And... They can't afford to pay that. Good point. Excellent point. It might not be your primary source, but it's sure a comfortable backup if and when the power goes out today or any exactly. day. Yeah, good and one. that's what ours is. It, it is an emergency. We don't typically use it. Uh, you know, it's it's just something that was with our house when we purchased it. And like Ms. Cox, we're in, we have this contract with North Atlantic Petroleum for 17 years, and they couldn't give us the common courtesy of a phone call to say, you know, I just come to give you a heads up that this is what we're planning on doing this year. They knew this long ago. This didn't happen yesterday. Oh, sure. Yeah. And even if the heads up is as tight a timeline as 30 days, it's still a lot better than how what's currently happening and what's taking place out there. I really appreciate the time. Stella, would you like to add anything else? Nope, that's everything. Thanks very much for your time, Patty. My have pleasure. A great day. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, there you go. That's a good one. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking about recruitment of nurses. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the NDP member for St. John Center. He's the leader of the NDP of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Jim Din. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Happy New Year to you as well. Happy New Year to you and yours. Thanks for having me on. I just want to talk a little bit about the recruitment issue, especially the uh, the uh, the trip to Ireland. And I guess the irony is not lost on me that we're basically trying to recruit nurses uh, who are on strike against a system that has many of the same issues that are uh, that are currently at play in our system? There's that the the when it comes to overcrowding, uh, safety, um, or the uh, the extended shifts. Those are issues that are still here. So <clears throat> we're we're trying to attract n- uh, nurses from one system to a system that has many of the sa- uh, same issues. And I noticed, of course, that in Mr. In Minister Osborne's uh, rationale and that he is hopeful that it that we'll attract nurses from Ireland to live here because Newfoundland is a good place to live 
that they're the housing challenges aren't as great is a fantastic lifestyle that we have similar licensing uh, demands that he failed to address the fact is that you know the one thing that's probably driving nurses away from here is are the working conditions themselves so i can't help but think you know I, i'll go back to what i've said before you start with the question why are, why do we have nurses leaving the system here uh and you start with that as the answer as, as the way of getting back to back to the solution how do for example if we lost I think the 600, 700 nurses. What would it take to get them back into the system? If we've, uh, if we, if we haven't addressed that, then I don't know. I'm not hopeful. I guess uh, as hopeful as the minister anyway. That by going elsewhere to recruit is necessarily going to solve the problem if we haven't addressed those issues. And if we haven't also looked at getting um, people in this province, a, a family physician or a collaborative care clinic. I think those are the issues that that will uh, will help resolve uh, go a long way to resolving the uh, the problems we're facing in our healthcare system. Can you do them separately, or is it sort of mandatory at this moment in time to do the two or the three or the four concurrently? Because the work life balance issue is driven by the number of bodies. The yeah. stress that they feel is because of demands on their their time and mandatory overtime and all the rest of it. So can you really separate them out or do we have no choice? And this is not defending government because I don't know the answer here. Is do we just simply have no choice but to try to do it all at the same time? My fear, I guess, and I've been around this, and I speak, I, I speak from my own point of view as, as a former head of the NLTA, and and and, and as a person who can, uh, who would can, uh, consult with and, and uh, with the the, uh, the unions in the healthcare profession. If this becomes the default, or if this becomes good, we've solved this problem, and there's no incentive to uh, try and fix the underlying problem. If indeed it's bodies alone, is how uh, how are you going to make sure that you retain the nurses that you bring here? <clears throat> if it's about salary, Newfoundland nurses are not the highest paid in the uh, in the uh, in the country. What's to stop the nurses to come here and say, well? Uh, I think I'm going to go somewhere else. There's a better, maybe better working conditions or better pay, uh, if that's the reason, rationale. The other part of it, I guess, Patty, is I, I'm, I'm concerned is that, uh, you know, we've got uh, we've got people who may want to come back to Newfoundland. It's not necessarily the uh, the pay that's bringing them back, but they they want to come back home. Uh, and I guess the other part of it is, uh, and, and and you raise a fair point, uh, but if to, what would entice people to leave their home, no matter what the problems are, just uh, because we have a good, it's a good place to live, housing challenges, I, that's not always necessary. The, the, uh, that's going to attract some, but if you don't attract enough uh, to, uh, to solve the problem or to address the underlying problem, I think we're still going to have this revolving door or the retention issue. So I, I guess what I'm looking at is uh, what, what's the long-term commitment to uh, addressing the, the, the retention? I do see in terms of sitting down and having that discussion uh, seriously with uh, the nurses. One thing the nurses have called for is a comprehensive human resources strategy. You've heard me, and, we, and we've called for that as well. Where is that? I think also we need to start looking at the fact that uh, I would argue that many people in the hospital are there because they don't have a primary health provider. They don't have a collaborative clinic. Um, uh, One gentleman who called me this week uh, or last week talked about the fact that he's he's got some serious issues. He still does not have a a family. Uh, He lost his doctor. 
and it's been a year, almost a year since he's gotten uh, he he registered. Still has not does not have a a permanent position. So I think I, I guess uh, to your point, if you're retaining the, if you're going over to recruit nurses, what are you going to do to retain them? And secondly, what are you going to do to make sure that the conditions here in this province are such that Maybe we don't need people going into the hospital as much. Maybe we've got they've got the care they need elsewhere. I don't see the, those other pieces to for the retention piece. Yeah, I think so there's multi multi prong uh, response to that question. I would I would yeah. suggest that collaborative care clinics are going to work, but it can't be just a matter of moving around the deck chairs. They have to be new entrants into the field. Secondly, Agreed. with the family doctor issue, it's fine for me someone to tell me that we have more doctors working and practicing in this province than ever before. But just like the sunshine list. We don't know what your job description is, your education and training, how long you've been on the job, so it's just a number matched up with a, uh, with a job. We don't have enough info. With the doctor issue, we need to know how many of those doctors have a full patient roster, are actively practicing, or if they're researching, or if they're doing simply virtual care, or whatever it is, because it's one thing to have more doctors than ever, but we have more people than ever without a family doctor, so help me yeah. understand or square that circle. And I think, and that's where we look, uh, where we've been focused. It, it's not glamorous to talk about getting the, uh, let's say, is not as glamorous as going to uh, to uh, to recruit international uh, healthcare workers. But the nuts and bolts of it are as this: What does it take to keep the nurses who are in the system there from walking away, attracting those who are who have gone to the uh, traveling clinics back? But how do we uh, make sure, like, and we look at the comprehensive human resources strategy? Where are we with that? And secondly, I guess that you hit the nail on the head with regards to the type of the care clinics. I can tell you, uh, we lost our doctor as well. Um, but I, I just need to know, like, where are we with this? If we're supposed to have 35, 40 uh, collaborative care clinics in five years, where are we with that right now? Because if it's six to eight care clinics a year, where are we? In, 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 are we on track? Are we behind? Um, and uh, in the end, I think for the most part, the, what's causing an awful lot of anxiety for the people who call my office is the fact is that I have no one to follow up. I've had surgery or I've, had, I've got this issue. I don't have uh, the, the person I need to follow up with. And they are afraid that something is going to get out of hand or become worse. And then it's, it's going to be, un, uh, I guess, untreatable. But, to, uh, you know, it's, it's great to have the announcements. I just need to know, and most of the people are calling in to me, they need to know, uh, like, am I going to have that primary health care? Nurses, I think, in the system, healthcare workers in the system need to know, okay, what is being done here to actually address, what do we uh, to address the issues that they're facing? Nurses have been calling for it. Healthcare workers have been calling for it. And I don't know, I, I think of anything else, the minister maybe need to talk to them and say, well, is this going to solve the problem? Maybe not. I, I, but, I, you know, address, address the underlying causes as well. A couple of very quick ones before I have to get to the news. Do we know of any success with recruiting nurses in India? Do we know of how many people have made their way to Ireland on the most recent recruiting efforts? Do we know anything about either of those fronts? Good question. And, uh, and and I think if we're going to, if, if government is going to be promoting this, then I think we need to find out, well, what, what are the numbers that we've gotten? How many have responded to it? But let's say, let's say you, we get, let's say we pick a number. Uh, let's say we get, we recruit 200 people. The question, the bigger question I'm going to ask is, 
what uh, will they will we be able to retain them and that's going to come that's the other question will we will we have done enough to retain them because in the end if we bring 200 people and they either say okay enough of this i'm better i was better off where i was at home i'm going back or i'm going to another part of canada that's the question uh, that we keep harping on it's one thing to recruit but you've got to make sure you retain people. But that's a good question, Patty. A very good question. Yeah, and how you measure success there, if it's you retain seventy five percent over the course of five years or yep. pick a number, I don't know. And then it's you know, how do you tailor make a recruit or pardon me, a retention strategy for people from a culture that we might not even know enough about what they need or want. So exactly. it, it becomes pretty tricky piece of business. Uh, last yep. word to you, Jim, before we uh, take a break for the newscast. Uh, the only thing I will say, certainly in, in terms of, P- I, I, uh, and I'll go back to this, you've heard me mention it before, I think uh, the uh, health accord lays out a pretty clear plan on what we need to do. And certainly one of the things that we uh, that's underpinning everything, as opposed to a reactionary, a reactionary approach, is about being proactive, about un- uh, addressing the, uh, the social determinants of health. And I think that's where our focus has got to be. That's the long term, I, I understand, and, but at the same point, if we want to eventually uh, uh, decrease the need for us to be in a hospital, then let's try to make our population healthier. And the health accord does lay out that plan very clearly. That it does. And that takes about every single department in the government to you. be aligned, uh, which is tricky as well. Uh, Jim, good to have you on. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. All right. That's Jim Din, the NDP member for St. John's Centre, leader of the NDP. Let's take a break for the news. Yolanda, you're next. She wants to talk about the lack of trainers for at-home chemo. Don't go away. Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number four, Yolanda, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well. Thanks for asking. How about you? Uh, well, we're on a bit of a rocky road there for a little bit, but we're hoping for a good result. Um, I just wanted to bring to light uh, an issue that has been highlighted for me in the last few days, which I find uh, concerning and actually unacceptable. My spouse found out several weeks before Christmas that he had, uh, or he has cancer, rather. And I will point out that the speed before Christmas, the speed and um, care that he received was stellar in terms of the diagnosis, uh, finding the tumor and the diagnosis, and then the follow-up. We had appointments with the specialist for chemo and radiation if needed, and the surgeon, and he had a CAT scan and a PET scan and results, and all of that was stellar and actually amazing. And to be truthful, very, very, very impressed with that, and I'd like to point that out. Uh, and then we get to Christmas, and here's where the several issues there. One, we were fortunate in that he had a PET scan done, managed to get a PET scan done before Christmas, and I think that was a kudos to the first uh, doctor that he's seen who pushed everything through and managed to get him in really quickly, which we, which we appreciate it for sure. But the PET scan closes down for Christmas, which is also concerning to others who are waiting for this very specialized test, which is critical in their care. Um, that concerns me. It didn't affect us in this case, but still there are others, I'm sure, who were affected by that kind of thing. Um, but further to that, so after Christmas, um, we were told that he needed to start chemo as soon as possible for the best outcome. Luckily for him, like up to the point uh, that he had the PET scan done, the cancer hadn't spread anywhere. But like all cancers, it can be aggressive and it can be um, 
it's hard to determine how it's going to react or whatever. So, you know, time is of the essence when you receive your treatments for chemo and or surgery. I guess in radiation, the same thing, but in our case, we're not getting the radiation. Um, so here's where the concern comes in. So he had an appointment on the 3rd of January to get a power port put in, which he did get done, which was excellent. So that was very early in the new year. So he theoretically could have had chemo right away after getting that put in. Um, we still haven't gotten any chemo. And so last week, no appointments, no calls, no contact or anything. Just once the port was in, that was it. it was just nothing. And so, you know, I've been in this system before and know that you have to be an advocate for your care, sadly, um, but true. And so um, in the fact that, you know, he has enough on his plate and he doesn't like to call, so I took it upon myself. So I started last week calling to over to the um, cancer clinic doctor's office to see if I could get some answers about his chemo, when it would start, and what the holdup was, and, you know, to make sure we could express how worried we were about it. And the longer you wait, you know, is this doing anything detrimental? Is it is the cancer going to spread? Or very mentally fatiguing and stressful as well. So I left a message, which is the protocol, because they're very busy, and I, I really appreciate that. I know there are still a lot of people in this boat. Um, so I left a message. I didn't get a reply. So I called back, and I got to speak to the secretary there. I gave her my uh, concerns. I asked about if we could find out when we were going to get chemo, uh, what kind of chemo, how many rounds of chemo before the surgery, you know, all that kind of stuff. Couldn't really get any information, kind of like pulling pulling teeth or something. Uh, I managed to glean a few things of very noncommittal, could be this, could be that, might be here, might be there. But what I did get from her was that um, there is one person apparently who does. So I did find out that he's going to do what they call HIP protocol, which is home infusion chemo basically, which means that uh, you go in on a Wednesday, for example, and you get a little bottle of chemo plugged into your port. And then on Friday, you take that home and you stay home with that. And then on Friday, I think they remove it. And then you wait for your cycle, whether it be two weeks or three weeks. In his case, it'll be, I think, still no confirmation, but I believe it's going to be two weeks. So then you do that for the number of repeating cycles. In his case, I think, again, no confirmation, four cycles. And then he will have surgery once he recovers from that. Um, My problem is there are, so I asked if he could get put on a cancellation list for it. And she said, oh, there is a cancellation list, but it's so long. He's not getting in through that way. And I'm like, so I said, how does this work? Like she says, well, there's one person. There is one lady, not her fault. Uh, I'm sure she's great at what she does, and I'm sure no, uh, but I I just can't understand how all of these people who need life or death, like this is a life or death situation, like chemo, and could be, like we could be already in and partially through a cycle of chemo, and we can't because we can't get in to get an hour and a half training on this home infusion thing. So So then I got to speak to the pharmacist in the cancer center who actually gave me more information Again, not confirmed, but a lot more information than I had speaking to the other girl. And she tells me that this is also the case, that there is one person. And I asked if it was like a specialized position where you would have to go to university like for, you know, many, many years, like a medical physicist would, who are very few and far between. Oh, no, it's it's nothing that specialized, but there is some training involved in it. 
And I said, well, what happens if, God forbid, she has an accident or she gets uh, unable to work for some reason or she gets sick or she's gone? Oh, well, there's a person or two who could step in and, and do the training. So there are apparently more people who could do it. So all of these people who are waiting for chemo, who are, you know, which could make a difference in whether they actually survive this or not, I said can't access the treatment they need because they are waiting on an hour and a half worth of training that they can't get because there's one person who does it and her schedule is full. I just, I really can't wrap my head around it. Nobody can. You know, when we're talking about that type of diagnosis, and of course you're 100% right, timing is incredibly important so whether it be training opportunities so you, that you can help at home and or the timeliness of getting a, 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 a for a, pardon me a future pet scan or whatever else is required the wait times is not a killing people and b stressing people out to the max i mean just add to it we closed one of the uh, four sites at the bliss center possibly sending people to toronto and all that's involved in that so if we have one person with a full schedule it seems to me a second person might be a good idea well, exactly. If there's such a backlog of people, wouldn't putting on an, an additional person or two, if you have more than one or two, wouldn't that sure. just, even if you just got rid of the backlog, right, and, and people could move forward with their treatments and stuff, that would be helpful. But I, I don't think just clearing a backlog is enough, to be honest. That's, that's my takeaway. But I will also tell you that... So, I'm very polite and I'm very kind and I and I fully understand that everybody in this position is feeling the same way because everybody wants their loved one or their self or whoever to, to get the treatment that they need as soon as possible. And I understand everybody's in that same boat, but I can't advocate for everyone. I can only advocate for myself, which I'm trying to do. And because I was very politely vocal yesterday in a very squeaky, squeaky wheel, um, I managed to get... So, he now has his home training scheduled and his first chemo session scheduled and that's you know good but still behind where we should be and what about all the other people so what concerns me the most is besides all of this is that what about the poor people who have no one to advocate for them or who really just are not well enough to be a squeaky wheel or should you have to be a squeaky wheel to get the care you deserve i don't think so i know that's what's happening but that's not the it's not the way it should be well, of course not. And some people just don't have the wherewithal to be said squeaky right. wheel or champion or advocate because it's just not in their nature. And so if that's simply part of their character, that can't be a strike against them for getting adequate and timely care. hundred percent. And there's there are so many people. And I mean, when you get when you hear those words, you know, you have cancer. I mean, I can't I haven't heard it myself, but I've heard it for sadly way too many of my family members and now my spouse. And I'm telling you, it is. It's a it's a gut wrenching, um, all encompassing, so terrifying uh, diagnosis, and and those words are horrible to hear. I mean, you know, you you're not really in the right mindset to you to have a, to take on a, a fight to get your care. You shouldn't have to fight to get the care that you deserve. In my mind, I just I can't I really can't wrap my head around it, but I I really can't understand why we're all stalled for chemo based on one person's schedule. 
Excellent question. You know, you might not go bankrupt in this country with that type of diagnosis versus maybe our friends to the south. But the way our system is currently working, we can pat ourselves on the back for universal health care. But if it's not working the way it's supposed to, there's no shame no. in admitting it out loud. There's no shame in the federal government not shirking the responsibility, simple talk about health care transfer dollars, to be involved in reimagining, reinvigorating, repurposing some of the way we approach healthcare, whether it be with, you know, preventative medicine as a bit more of a feature versus the reactive system, because there's so much to it. So it's fine that it, you're going to get it without a bill in the mail, but I'd rather a bill than maybe a visit over to Carnell's to plan for my funeral. Well, exactly. And I, I fear that there are many people falling through the cracks and uh, not getting the care that they deserve. And it shouldn't be due to I'm sure the bottom line is that there's probably only uh, money enough for one position to do the training that might be what it boils down to I, I can't say for sure but it sounds like it always usually does boil down to that well then let's do the cost comparison so someone becomes more and more ill because of a an extended wait consequently the likelihood of them ending up in hospital you could be in hospital for a month and we could have paid two additional people to take on that role so if we're talking about you know sometimes dislike putting dollars and cents inside of healthcare, but we have to because everything will eventually boil down to the almighty dollar keeping people out of hospital is an excellent idea it's more cost effective than anything else we can talk about keeping them out of the prison the same thing the two most expensive things in this country a night in hospital a night in the penitentiary maybe reducing those numbers we come across safer healthier with less money a hundred percent, and people's people's lives are more valuable than, and you know somebody sure. making a decision. Sorry, uh, you can't get your treatment. Uh, no, that doesn't really help everyone <laughs> to hear that. And how frustrating to be home waiting for your care and, and praying that you're going to make it through something like this and not being able to access the care you need just just for something like that is crazy. I appreciate the time. I wish you and your family well, Yolanda. Thank you. Take, Happy New Year to you, Betty. The same to you. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Final break of the morning. When we come back, Doug Pawson, Executive Director of End Homelessness St. John's, had the Minister of Municipal Affairs and the Environment, Eric Bragg, to talk about the new approach to maybe some considerations amending the Lands Act regarding Crown Land. Don't go ahead. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the Executive Director at End Homelessness St. John's. That's Doug Pawson. Morning, Doug. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. Happy New Year to you. Hope you and your family had a great holiday. The very same to you and yours, Doug. Appreciate the time. Like I've been saying, I don't know, I suppose for years, but in the last couple of days with the forecasted weather coming, that doesn't seem to be too bad at this moment in time, but bad enough if you're forced to live outside. You know, we've got numbers like 231 people who are homeless homeless in the capital city, which is probably not reflective of the right number. Where does your mind go on days like today, knowing that we have at least that many people that might be forced to have no option but to be outdoors in this? Yeah, I mean it's a really um, it's a really tough proposition for folks to be up against uh, the, the the bad weather and, and, and cold weather and snow and and uh, who may not have an option and you know over the last you know over the last year really we've seen a, a real rise in in homelessness and those experiencing homelessness in the community and you know we know the province does a great job of trying to get everybody a shelter placement um, but the numbers just continue to grow as the cost of living just forces a lot of folks and individuals families who are living on the margins into into that experience of homelessness and 
So, you know, on these days, it's always it's always hard to see the weather and the forecast and, and know that there's limited options for folks who, who may not have a place to go. Where does the responsibility lie? Because there's some disconnects there. You know, the city and emergency warming centers versus the province responsibility in housing at large. So where are we with who who we're having to turn to here to make make days like today more manageable for somewhere to be in overnight as opposed to some emergency shelters, which are at capacity and their daytime service only? Yeah, typically, they, typically, um, you know, the jurisdiction for for emergency shelter falls to the provincial government, um, and and that's just uh, been the sort of the, the jurisdiction there um, within the city of St. John's. Um, you know, the city itself um, has emergency preparedness plans. I think, I guess, what I what I'd like to, to sort of emphasize is, regardless of who has jurisdiction, a coordinated emergency preparedness plan is is going to have to be required. Um, we're seeing, you know, adverse weather, you know, caused by climate change affecting all regions of the province and and it's on days like today and, and others where we have these really adverse effects that a coordinated response is going to be needed and and we can't be in the business of pointing fingers of whose responsibility it is it's it's everybody's responsibility and, and it's the responsibility of municipalities uh, and the provincial government and community organizations around the province and so you know i think with the shelter systems being at, at capacity not just here in, in st john's but again around the province i think it's it's time to think about how you integrate that plan and, and coordinate it so you can you can plan in advance of these adverse weather conditions where we often will have a day, two, three uh, to plan. So we know the province has made an announcement regarding emergency shelter, affordable housing, but the, it's the immediacy that's not addressed with that long-term plan. For starters, look, what exactly is available out there today for someone who needs shelter? Because I think yeah. there's a real misunderstanding about what's actually there for people anyway. Yeah, no, it's a, that's a great question. So if somebody's finding themselves uh, experiencing homelessness, uh, they have no place to go for today, for example. They'll, they'll call the emergency shelter line and, and hopefully speak with somebody who can find a placement for them. Um, again, when the shelters are full, they may look to other options um, uh, to, to find folks uh, an accommodation. Um, but really, that, that's kind of what's available. You can drop into organizations throughout the day. But the challenge with the cold weather, um, and even really, you you know the hot weather too uh, is that those a lot of the c- current organizations their infrastructure is not designed for things like a warming center to drop in and stay for the full day uh, to warm up and, and take access supports it's just a lot of infrastructure for organizations around town are just not designed for that so so that's a challenge it's like you, you might need to find an emergency shelter for overnight but also the challenge is during the day when there's not enough space or, or access to space and we know a lot of folks uh, in the organizations will be closed on days like today so so where do folks go? It, it can be a pretty dire situation. So you talk about a coordinated approach. I mean, give me some example of what the city's role versus the province's role versus not-for-profits or charities or the gathering place. What does a coordinated approach look like to deal with it in the short term? Because we can talk long term and, you know, matching dollars from the province and the feds for affordable housing and emergency shelters. But what does a short term coordinated approach look like? Well, I think, you know, both both levels of government, the city, for example, and the province will have different emergency preparedness plans and coordinate for things like, you know, when we had snowmageddon. Um, but the challenge would be for it, for for folks who are vulnerable, uh, and those including those uh, who are experiencing homelessness, um, to be integrated into the plan. So what we saw with Snowmageddon, for example, was um, a, a, a you know direction from the city to ensure that that those main thoroughfares were were available for organizations so that they could get to and from uh, their staff could get to and from to serve those folks. Um, so things like that are important. We've seen it with Dark and L, where warming centers were established. 
managed by the city at, at city-owned uh, uh, facilities. So I think there's examples and precedents of how this can work. It's just including, uh, you know, the, the, the homeless prevention component into that planning uh, moving forward. So, so that you know, when these adverse uh, weather conditions are happening, we can we can enact the plan and, and, and set up the, the infrastructure for for those supports to be in place. Uh, Doug, really appreciate the time. I'll give you the final thought before I squeeze one more call on this morning. Oh, no, I, I appreciate your, your concern about this, Patty. It's, uh, you know, like you said to the last caller, when folks have nowhere to go and they resort to hospital or, or petty crime to, to, to find places uh, to stay warm and fed, um, those are really expensive emergency services, and uh, we can do better. So I appreciate your, your, your time and consideration on that. I appreciate your time, Doug. Stay in touch. Yeah, we'll do. Thank you. Okay, you're welcome. Bye bye. It's Doug Pawson, the executive director at End Homelessness St. John's. Let's go. Line number six. Take a moment to the Liberal member for Fogo Island, Cape Friels. He's the minister responsible for fisheries, forestry, and agriculture. That's Derek Bragg. Minister Bragg, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How you doing? Not too bad, sir. Thanks for making time. Oh, no worries. I'm sorry we don't have, we don't have a lot of time to talk about this this morning, but we opened up consultation that started yesterday on our Crown Lands uh, adverse position, and what we're looking at there is getting more people to our website, Engage NL, to get more feedback. As of uh, earlier this morning, we had eight people that went on late last night, early this morning, that would have, uh, did feedback either through the survey or the online, uh, you can do an online question and submission as well. But we just want to get out there as you know last year from time to time you wear crown lands adverse position came up lots of our older communities in this province people have been living on properties for years and they don't have clear title we're just looking at a way to hopefully be able to clean that up we have some suggestions there one of it is that we may content we may reduce the time from 20 years from 1977 to 10 years but that's open for a conversation we're looking at looking at a also giving this a definite time like let's give this five years and get it cleaned up and then we're we go from there or we may be able to offer a document from crown lands that says you know the crown has no has no right to this title someone owns it isn't that really us we know it's a family says to you and we can make some sort of a legal document there but we're opening it up for the conversation we're looking forward to the conversation paddy uh, is there any thought given to turning back the clock to the first of january of 1977 and reinstituting squatters rights it retroactively and just let it proceed as it once was and if there's any issue where the crown has issue with one piece of crown land or another we'll take it on a case-to-case basis versus any of the suggestions of continuous use from 20 to 10 and present presentation of documents what have you any opportunity to turn the clock back in full and just proceed as we did prior to 77 there may be an opportunity to turn the clock back and full, but we need a way. We, we, we are good stewards for looking out to the Crown lands for this province, and we are responsible. Actually, we're legally responsible under the Lands Act. So if people continue to just go and bail wherever they want and say, well, in 20 years I'm going to hold it, I'm going to hold it, because so that would be that would be a reason for someone to go for arguing, take a bill a cabin or a cottage or an home somewhere now and say, you know what, I'll stay off the grid for 20 years, and then I'm going to come forward and say, hey, I've been here for 20 years, and you guys haven't. Ding me. So we're looking at like we're looking at making this 
making it for the for the people that I'll say older generation because that's what the problem seems to be in a lot of our rural communities. We have a lot of people that are ready to move now. They move probably to an home somewhere else or moving with their family. They're looking to sell their property and they don't have clear title. This is where we're looking to do. We're not looking at making this problem bigger. We're looking at cleaning up the problem we already have. Sure, but I mean we could always go with land use applications and deed searches from today forward and just deal with the people who've already built their home and lived there for decades just to find out like the diamonds in Catalina that they don't own the land. So can you give us a firm timeline about when the consultations will end and decisions that will be made because people are calling me, people are calling different members of your government and opposition members about what's right in front of them. Legal, costly, timely. So is there a timeline for making the end of the consultations and implementing changes? in on January 27th. I'm anticipating after that time we'll meet with people like Law Society, municipalities in now, realtors in the province. Like, we're going to do a fulsome review of this, and we're open to have this done. I'm not looking at this being years to do. I'm looking at this being weeks to do. Uh, I, wish- I don't want to rush it, but I know it's urgent. So we just want to do a good, thorough look at this and, and give it a sober second look, I guess for what we can really do to clean this up. A voice to one of my staff members this morning was like, when this is all said and done, we need to make everyone's life a little easier when it comes to this. You don't need people being stressed out in the expensive legal bills. Some may come down to that, but some certainly don't need to come down to that. Yeah, I wish we had more time today. I understand you're busy the rest of the week, but when people have a chance to go to Engage NL and put their two cents forward, and more time for me to look at the uh, the presentation and for folks to chime in, we'll get back to you in the next week or so to see where we are and what we're hearing. So let's do that, Patty. Let's set the time for a couple weeks' time before this ends so that we can put a plug in to get more submissions in. As I said, there's only eight right now, but it's only early. It was late last night when this went live. So I'm open this call today brings 80 more calls or 80 more people to it later today. But we need to see 800 people, to be honest. We need everybody's everybody's thoughts on this, no matter what they are, because to maybe some idea that they're, you know what, it's genius and we can get it done. So that's what I'm looking forward to, Patty. I'm looking forward to helping to fix this, not creating another monster. Because we know full well it has to be fixed. Amendments required for the Lands Act. Appreciate the time. We will indeed circle back in a couple of weeks. No problem. Thanks for taking my call. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. That's uh, Derek Bragg. He's a Liberal member for Fogo Island Cape Friels, the Minister of Fisheries, Forestry, and Agriculture. Good show today. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.